0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Surprise Jab Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ruger, surprising you with new topics every single week and jabbing you with your daily dose of UFC. And we have got a absolutely fantastic UFC card this weekend going down in Mexico City. We have uh, 13 fights as of right now. Who knows what will happen before the weigh-ins tomorrow, Friday, September uh, 22nd. 23rd i think it's february 23rd the wins will be going down that should be friday gonna be an absolutely massive card some big implications in the main event and co-main event when we're talking about title shots we're gonna be covering all of that to round out this episode as well checking out some new ufc news going through the 48 laws of power checking out the pfl um they have an event going down in saudi arabia actually i think elimination chamber has something going on in uh the for wwe they have something going on in australia this weekend it's just um just a bunch of massive events going on throughout all forms of sports leagues. Um, I was going to do an NBA and NHL check-in, but I realized the NBA uh, has been on All-Star break. So I don't think we're actually going to talk about that till next Thursday, which should be episode 70 by that point. Um, so yeah, we'll save that for uh, next week. And our surprise topic for this week, for this episode, is we are going to be looking at the mysterious, the what could this be, what even is this, of Scientology. That is right, Scientology. I know some people see the buildings. They think of Tom Cruise as a celebrity, the weird things all about it. We are going to be taking a look at what is Scientology. I don't know. I figured it'd be something fun, something to look at. Let's not waste any time. Let's get right into today's episode. Of course, let's start things off with some new UFC news, a look at the rankings, and there hasn't been necessarily a lot, but there's been more than a Monday since we last talked. There have been some fight announcements. Um, Of course, we all know Alex Pejera, your current light heavyweight champion, will be taking on your number one ranked light heavyweight, Jamal Hill, former champion who had to vacate the belt due to injury. And it was just revealed that Alex Pejera... Was actually offered this fight for 301 UFC 301 going down May 4th in Rio de Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which is what everyone was expecting. Even Jamal Hill mentioned they were training for that May date, but the UFC offered them a lot of money to main event UFC 300, which means they actually ran out of their planned main events. They actually ran out of main events, so they had to push these guys to step up a month earlier to take this fight so kudos to both of them but i just figured it was interesting that alex Pereira shared that he was offered 301 accepted 301 but then they came back literally the day before the announcement was made uh and offered them to fight at ufc 300 um alex Pereira, also your current of course light heavyweight champion has just signed a new eight fight deal with the ufc so you're gonna be seeing alex Pereira at least three to four more years i mean maybe even five excellent stuff excellent stuff he's a great champion Such a fun add on the roster. And uh, yeah, very much pumped for UFC 300 going down April 13th. We've had a couple of fights announced in the past few days, one of which for UFC Atlantic City going down March 30th in, of course, Atlantic City, New Jersey between featherweights Pat Sabatini and Nate the Train Landrear. Pat Sabatini. Uh, not too many notable wins. Um, out of his 18 victories, though, I think like 13 of those are by submission. He's absolutely talented in that regard. Always been on the verge of the rankings of sorts. His opponent in nate the trained landweer. I mean, notable fight of the nights. No notable performance of the nights. It's just an always an entertaining fighter when he steps into the octagon four and three in the UFC, 17 and five professionally. That is a fun fight to have on a fight night. That's going to be a banger of a fight. And this fight could go to the ground, could stay on the feet, wherever it goes, going to be entertaining. Another fun fight that was announced uh, for UFC Vegas, 92 going down May 11th. Gosh, so many apex events. Absolutely hate it. Between Jared Gooden and Kevin Joucette in the men's welterweight division, Jared Gooden coming off a big win over, I don't even know who it was. Was it Wellington Terman? It was someone to save his career in the UFC. He was able to pick up a win, and he's being fed to Kevin Jousset, who is 2-0 in the UFC, 10-2 and professionally from France. Dude is an absolute killer. Had a great debut over Um Actually beat Kiefer Crosby and then beat non because that wasn't even his debut. Very excited for that fight. As well. Uh, another fight announced for the women's bantamweight division. Tamiras Vidal and Haley Cohen for UFC Vegas 93 on May 18th. Another Apex event. Um, just women's bantamweight bout. Nothing too interesting there. Good one, though, in the women's strawweight division going down at UFC Vegas 93 on May 18th. Between Luiana Pinero and Angela Hill, these two women are ranked in the women's strawweight division division if i am not mistaken angela hill's ranked number 12 luiana panero ranked number nine should be a fun one luiana panero three and one in the ufc angela hill 11 and 13 in the ufc wow she actually started her career uh five and zero before joining the ufc and has since won eleven fights lost 13 that is pretty nuts thinking about it the amount of fights that angela hill has had uh legend of the game been in the ufc a long time Always happy to see her scrapping it up, but yeah, those have those have probably been the biggest fights that you know they that have been announced. Uh, nothing, nothing too big as of late, but I'm sure not until UFC 300 will we be seeing some more uh, adventurous fights, if you will, being announced. So fun stuff to come in the UFC fight world. But let's currently look at the rankings, which drew update on Tuesday every week and this one this was a pretty big rankings update if i'm not overstepping myself because we have a new number five pound for pound fighter in the world is a men's pound for pound rankings update and ia topira your new featherweight champion debuts at number five in the rankings alex behera goes up to four leon edwards the three alexander volkanovsky drops down to the number seven spot and it's crazy it is crazy last summer Last summer, so literally July, probably I'd say August, September, uh, up until October, Volkanovski was the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world. He has since dropped to number seven with back-to-back brutal KO losses. You hate to see it. Um, Sean O'Malley down to eight. Duplessis down to nine. Pantoa down to ten. And uh, Kamaru Usman has been booted from the men's pound-for-pound for, pound for the first time since 2018. 2018 was the last time Usman wasn't in the men's pound-for-pound. Pound. It's crazy what can happen in five years. Shame to see it. But uh, hopefully Kamaru Usman will be getting back in the octagon sooner rather than later. In the men's featherweight division, Volkanovski drops down to the number one contender spot. Max Holloway is at the 2. Yair, fighting in the main event this weekend, is at the 3. Fascinating to see where they all go from uh, where they are at now. In the men's bantamweight division, Rob Dovichelli, after his dominant win over Henry Cejudo, passes his buddy Aljamain Sterling to become the official number one contender. And Sean O'Malley said on Instagram today... That after he beats Marlon Vera, he wants to give Marab a title shot. So Marab do title shot incoming later in this year. Could be against Marlon Vera. Could be against Sean O'Malley. We'll see what happens. Um, Henry Sudo drops down to the number six spot in the rankings. No idea what's going to happen to him next. But if Umar Namagwetov wins in two weeks, I think he should be the next competitor to fight Henry Sudo. I'm just being honest. In the men's welterweight division, Ian Machado Gary jumps four spots from 10 to 6. He's now the number six contender in the world. Matches up perfectly. Brady, Thompson, Neil, Luke all drop down one spot in the rankings. In the men's middleweight division, Brendan Allen passes Paulo Costa to um, from 7 to 6. Brendan Allen's got main event coming up April 6. Jack Hermanson's now tied with Roman Dolodizzi for the number 9 spot in the rankings. Anthony Hernandez, after his dominant win over Roman Kopilov, moves from 15 to 13. Good stuff for uh, Fluffy Hernandez. Should have a big fight coming up against someone like Roman Dolodizzi, dare I say, loser of Vittorian Brendan Allen. Big stuff to come. For them. In the women's strawweight division, Amanda Hibas passes Mackenzie Dern after Mackenzie Dern's fight of the night loss. Miranda Maverick passes Jasmine Jasu Davis after her win over Andrea Lee on the prelims. And Marcos Rogero de Lima passes Rodrigo Nascimento after his dominant win over Junior Tafa. Lots of uh, implications, but the biggest obvious that Ito Pura is now the number five pound for pound fighter in the world. Incredible to see from the Matador. He has absolutely earned it. He is. Fought his way to the top, undefeated, 15-0. Put some freaking respect on this man's name. I mean, come on. Don't get much better than that. He could be main eventing in a soccer stadium come later this year. And especially against someone like Max Holloway, that could be massive, very much excited for that fight. But that's all the UFC news that I've got. I think there were a few fights that moved around, like Alonzo Medfield and Carlos Ulberg. Supposed to be a big light heavyweight fight at Atlantic City, March 30th. I think it's moved to like... April or May or something like that, May 11th even, something like that. I think that fight moved, but other than that, nothing too notable, nothing too big of stature that we need to talk about on today's episode in regard to the UFC. Now, on this topic of MMA, if you will, the PFL and Bellator are two of the UFC's biggest rivals, and they actually merge. They're actually owned under the same entity, if you will. And I believe it's actually PFL that owns Bellator, but they're still considered separate promotions. And the only way I could really like put this into terms would kind of be if, oh gosh, you know, the, when the NBA purchased the ABA, actually no, when that happened, the ABA became part of the NBA. I don't even know what example to use, but basically the PFL owns Bellator, but they still let Bellator have their own champions, have their own, put on their own fights. Um, What do I know? But in Saudi Arabia this weekend, going down the the Riyadh Arena, uh, the Kingdom Arena, actually, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, they're having a PFL versus Bellator Champions card. It is absolutely massive. There are 12 fights on the card. And I figured we'd check them out, see what fighters were going to be on there, because the main event has huge implications. Let's start with some of the canceled fights that were on this card. You had Gabriel Alves Braga and Aaron Pico. Um, I believe this fight has been rebooked. Big one in the featherweight division for this uh, co-promotion, if you will. Big Yo Ali Walsh was supposed to take on Chris Morris, but Morris withdrew. So instead, Big Yo Ali Walsh will be making his professional debut against Emmanuel Policio. Big Yo Ali Walsh is the, I believe, great-great-grandson of Muhammad Ali. A great-grandson, great-great-grandson. Somewhere in those... Somewhere in—he's related to Muhammad Ali. He's one of Muhammad Ali's grandson. I don't know if it's just one generation or two generation. Emmanuel Policio, the man he's taken on uh, professionally in MMA, is 1-0 from uh, Brazil. Uh, not Brazil. He's from Argentina, actually. Your welterweight um, champions from both promotions, Magomed Magomed Karimov from the PFL and Jason Jackson of the uh, Bellator promotion. We're supposed to have a welterweight clash to see who the best welterweight was, but unfortunately, Magomed uh, Karimov had to uh, withdraw due to injury, so uh, Jason Jackson will be looking for uh, new— actually, Jason Jackson will be taking on Ray Cooper the third. Wow, Ray Cooper the third. That's a name I haven't heard in a while. Uh, he actually won the PFL championship— not too long ago but um has since just gone on a pretty unfortunate run last season yeah he who did he beat where's where's it say if they won a championship having trouble finding that um i think he beat magomed magomed kireedov in 2021 to win it but in this past season, went uh, 0-2 or something like that. I don't know. Doesn't really matter. That's just a big fight. That'll be going down. And also, we were supposed to have a featherweight championship fight between Jesus Pinedo and Patricio Pitbull, but Pinedo withdrew. So instead, Pitbull will take on Gabriel Braga. Oh, they just matched up Gabriel Braga and uh, Patricio Pitbull. Oh, I see what they did. I see what they did. Um, also on this card you got some Saudi Arabian fighters, Abdullah Al-Khatani, who is seven and one. He'll be taking on Edu Kalano Rayu, who is from India. He's 4-1. And, and the first premium of the night will be 17-2-1 pro fighter Malik Bashel, as he takes on 5-0 Brazilian fighter Vinicius Pereira. Very cool. Clarissa Shields, 1-1 one one in her MMA career, but notable legendary boxer in that circuit. We'll be taking on 1-2 Kelsey DeSantis. I wonder if she's related to Ron DeSantis at all. Um, Kicking off the main card for this event, you have Clay Collard taking on A.J. McKee. A.J. McKee, former Bellator, I believe it's featherweight champion. His only pro loss is to Patricio Pitbull. Other than that, he's 20-1. and Dude's an absolute killer. And Clay Collard, a killer from the PFL, excellent in the boxing sphere. He's even fought in the UFC. I mean, this guy has been around. He's done it all. Um, I'm trying to see in the UFC who he fought. Thought it was a long, long time ago. And I mean, not not necessarily too long, but back in 2015, uh, he actually lost. He got TKO'd by Max Holloway. That's probably the biggest moment of his career is uh, losing to Max Holloway, which, you know, it's not too bad of someone to lose to. Max Holloway is super, super talented. But, um, yeah, it should be a fun way to open up the main card for this event. After that, you have Tiago Santos and Yoel Romero, two legends of the UFC game, two former uh, contenders in their respective divisions. Tiago Santos took John Jones to a split decision. Yoel Romero went to two close split decisions. Actually, two against Robert Wicker, one against Adesanya. Very, very competitive fire. Tiago Santos hasn't had the best luck as of late. Tiago Santos has been on a very, very rough run. After um, finishing Jan Blachowicz in 2019 and then fighting Jon Jones for the belt, he would proceed to finish his UFC career one in four, losing decisions to Glover Teixeira, uh, Alexander Rakic, Magomed Ankalaev, and Jamal Hill. Actually, not by decision to Teixeira and Hill. He was finished in both of those. He would then fight Rob Wilkinson in his PFL debut. That fight would be overturned to a no contest. He'd have a canceled bout against Mohamed Fakhredini, and now he winds up against UL Romero. So he hasn't gotten a win since 2021, but we'll see if the tides turn for Tiago Santos. He takes on Yael Romero, another, of course, legendary UFC fighter. Um, he's only been finished once in his pro career, which was like early on his debut. Since leaving uh, the uh, UFC, he's lost to Phil Davis in Bellator, beaten Alex Pelosi, beaten Melvin Mahonvi, and most recently lost to Vadim Nenkov for the Men's Light Heavyweight Championship. That was at Bellator 297. But now we find ourselves at the PFL champ versus champ. And that's where we get to our first champion versus champion fight of the night as we head to the 265. Oh, wait, no. Vadim Nemkov is not your champion. I, wow, I forgot. Ryan Bader beat Vadim Nemkov. Wow, just the stuff I forget about in other promotions. Um, Vadim Nemkov... No, he wasn't. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyways, that's a big fight. I'm so confused who the champions are, P. P, Bellator and PFL. I I apologize for the confusion. Absolute mess over here on the Tapology site. But yeah, Vadim Nemkov is 17-2. He's on like a 12-fight win streak. Takes on Bruno Capeloza, KO artist. That should be a fun one. That's all I got for you there. Ray Cooper, Jason Jackson going down. Jason Jackson upset someone. In the P- in the Bellator to in in Bellator to win the belt, it was Yaroslav Amasov. Yes, it was him, Yaroslav Vlasov, who was an undefeated, I believe, Ukraine fighter. And Jason Jackson finished him in like the final round. Um, co-main event, though, that's a fun one. Your uh, middleweights will be doing battle: Impacon of the PFL and Johnny Eblen. Johnny Eblen trains with Sean Strickland. He's fourteen and O. Your Bellator uh, middleweight champion, actually, from Des Moines, Iowa. Very fun fact. Chains American Tot team. Uh, of his 14 victories, half by finished, half by decision. And as for Impa Kansagana, of course, he was the guy who was KO'd by Joaquin Buckley with the spinning back kick, just known as just like the guy who got KO'd. Uh, after that, he would pick up a win against Sasha Palatinoff on UFC, then lose to Carlston Harris. He would then get cut, go to Eagle FC, lose a split decision. After that, though, went to the XMMA promotion, got a round one knockout, joined the PFL, round one knockout, wins a decision, wins a triangle choke, gets a TKO, and in the championship beats Josh Silvera by unanimous decision. That just career turnaround for Ben Kansagana is absolutely amazing. He's the pure determination of never give up. So excited for that fight. I don't know. It's going to be a tough one. Johnny Evelyn's a killer. Ben Kansagana's got heart. We'll see what happens. But the biggest thing, the biggest um, event, the biggest fight, I should say, on this whole card is Hennefera Ryan Bader in the main event. This one is going to be a fun one. Going to be a fun one. Your heavyweight champions from the Bellator and the PFL promotions. And the winner who was announced will be taking on Francis Ngannou later in the year after Francis Ngannou boxes Anthony Joshua. Coming up in March, I believe, this fight will be Massive, massive implications. Hennem Ferreira, knockout artist. 12 wins to his career. 10 of those by knockout. Hasn't lost since 2022 in August. Been on absolute spree. Three straight knockouts in the PFL. Amazing stuff. That's Ryan Bader, legend. Ryan Darth Bader, funny nickname. 31-7 and Uh, is his professional record. How old is he? He is 40 years old. Wow, that boy is... That boy is old. 15 decisions, too. A lot of decisions. He actually last beat Fedor Emilianko at the uh, start of 2023. TK Odom in round number one. That's pretty crazy. Guy used to fight in the UFC, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, didn't he fight D Daniel Cormier back in the day? Yeah, he actually um, beat, lost to Glover Cheryl, lost to Anthony Joshua, lost to Leo Machida, lost to John Jones. Ooh, that is. Now that's pretty crazy think about it. he lost to john jones that was back in well how far ago was that that was a long time ago i don't know let's not spend any more time on the pfl and this bellator card i mean it's all right It is what it is doesn't really earn too much of our time we're a ufc fan page over here we're a ufc fan page we don't get we don't get time for any of that other nonsense of whatever whatever else goes on. We have more important things to look at, such as obtaining power. That is right. I don't even have to segue. You already know what I'm about to get into if you've been following our little series here. As we've been reading the 48 Laws of Power, an amazing book teaches you how to get power, just how to be on the lookout for people trying to get power. There's certain law power, certain laws you can put into effect to um, just get people to work with you, if you will, follow what you say, in a sense. I don't really want to use the word manipulation, but you know, it's all about obtaining power. We got three, three new laws this episode. Last two, I think have only been two. That's right. We're up to three laws for this episode. Going to be a fun one. They're all of importance. Let's not waste any time. Let's get right on into it. Starting off with law number 37 of the 48 laws of power, which is create compelling spectacles. Hmm. Striking imagery and grand symbolic gestures create the aurora of power. Everyone responds to them. Stage spectacles for those around you, then full of arresting visuals and radiant symbols that heighten your power. I don't know what that then was in there for, but uh, dazzled by appearances, no one will notice what you are really doing, which is obtaining power. The example they used was basically this guy named Dr. Wensleiter, who was a doctor from Berlin, and he made people think that he could use the moon to heal them, and he had a special way of doing this in his uh, office, if you will, in his um, facility his his hall wherever he did his stuff where he would have the moon reflect down um as he performed whatever stuff he did and he made people think that uh, hey he used the power of the moon and that wasn't actually the case he um just knew how people work he didn't really know anything about medicine at all and he was able to acquire a lot of wealth and power in his little berlin village which i find very very fascinating Um, some of the keys to this, some of the keys to this are, um, using words to plead your case is risky business. Words are dangerous instruments and often go astray. The words people use to persuade us virtually invite us to reflect on them with words of our own. We mull over them and often end up believing the opposite of what they say. Tell me that hasn't happened to you. It also happens that words offend us, stirring up associations unintended by the speaker. However, the visual... Short-circuits the labyrinth of words. Okay, so the visuals that you use will short-circuit the labyrinth of words. It'll, it'll go past them, okay? It strikes with an emotional power, an immediacy that leaves no gaps for reflection and doubt. Like music, it leaps right over rationale, reasonable thoughts. So imagine that moon doctor trying to make a case for his medical practice. He's just trying to convince people by telling them about the healing powers of the moon and about his own special connection to an object in the sky. Fortunately for him, though, he didn't do that, and he instead showed people the moon. He made them think that he was using it, okay? Understand, words put you on the defensive. If you have to explain yourself, your power is already in question. The image, the image, the spectacle, on the other hand, imposes itself as a given. It discourages questions, creates forceful association, resists unintended interpretations, communicates instantly, and forges bonds that transcend social differences. Words stir up arguments and divisions— Images bring people together. Think about a painting, for example. Paintings bring people together. I am definitely someone who can go to an art museum and really appreciate the works of art that I'm seeing presented to me. Um, The symbol. The symbol has the same force, whether it is visual, which is like the statue of something, or a verbal description of something visual. Okay, the symbolic object stands for something else, something abstract. All right. Now, there are some steps, there are some certain things you need to be aware of when you're trying to create your spectacle. Um, The first step in using images is to understand the primacy of sight among the senses, the primacy, just how much more sight is than uh, your other senses. Before the Renaissance, it had been argued sight and other senses, taste, touch, and so on, operate on a relatively equal plane, but since then, the visual has come to dominate the others, and that's the sense we most depend on and trust. I mean, think about, you know, seeing is believing, as, oh, that is the quote that goes right along with this law, seeing is believing. Hearing is not believing, okay? And also never neglect the way you arrange things visually. They always have to be arranged. Factors like color um, have an enormous symbolic renaissance. Um, you know, there's this uh, con artist named Yellow Kid Whale who actually created a newsletter um, talking about phony stocks that he was going to sell, and he called it the Red Letter Newsletter. And he had it printed um, in red ink despite being costly It ended up paying off, and a lot of people responded to it. The visual can contain great emotional power. The, the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, worshiped the sun as a god for most of his life. That's right, the sun. but one day though he looked up at the sun and he saw a cross superimposed on it and the vision of the cross over the sun decided, had him change himself to Christianity and he actually turned with the Roman Empire Catholic after that, which you know I'm not that's pretty crazy if you think about it if that's true. Um, And the most effective out of all this is a combination, a fusion of images and symbols that have never been seen together. The creation of these new um, images and symbols out of the old ones, it almost has a poetic effect because viewers associate, um, you know, them with a sense of participation. Like, you know, I've seen that before. I feel like I'm a part of this. Visual images often appear in a sequence, and the order in which they appear creates a symbol. Okay? The first to appear, for instance, uh, symbolizes power. The image at the center seems to have central importance. This is uh, near the end of World War II, orders came from uh, General Eisenhower that uh, the American troops were going to walk their way into Paris after they liberated them from the Nazis. But the French general, Charles de Gaulle, however, realized that this sequence implied the Americans now commanded the fate of France through much manipulation. He was able to have his uh, second armored division of French soldiers walk first, and it just commanded power. And this visual ins- associ- association is what was crucial to the France feeling that like they were independent of the world as it was. Things always change in this game of symbols. A game of spectacles It's probably no longer possible to pose as a sun king anymore. Or uh, they give this example of uh, Diana. She was this prince who basically acted like she was some deity of goddess from Rome, and she was able to convince like the king that like she should always stay with him or whatever. A younger king. It was it was a very interesting story. I chose not to use it because it was very weird. But uh, she basically created this symbol of herself as being something more than normal. Um, You can make your own mythology out of figures from more recent history because more people, you know, they're people who are comfortably dead but still powerful enough in the public eye. Maybe someone like Michael Jackson Prince, if you will the queen. Using symbols also as a courtier-like effect. We've talked about the courtier, you know, since they are often uh, gentler than brutish words. The psychotherapist Dr. Milton H. Erickson always tried to find symbols and images that would communicate to the patient in ways that words could not. When dealing with a severely troubled patient, he would not question him directly, but would talk about something irrelevant, such as driving through the desert in Arizona, where he practiced in the 1950s. In describing this, he would eventually come to an appropriate symbol for what he suspected was the man's problem if he felt the patient was isolated Dr. Harrison would talk of a single ironwood tree and how its isolation left it battered by the winds in the desert. Making an emotional connection with the tree as a symbol, the patient would open up more readily to the doctor's probing. And that's not maniacal at all. That's just an excellent tool used by therapists. You have to think, if you can... I certainly try and do this. I probably need to work more on it. But I certainly try and draw comparisons from things in life. I always try and find the good in things, you know. I wouldn't want to use this law for evil, Okay using this power of symbols as a way to rally and unite your troops or team, you know, that's a that's a very powerful thing. Um, here's an example. During the rebellion against the French crown in 1648, those loyal to the king disparaged the rebels by comparing them to the slingshots, which are in French, it meant little boys, um, which uh, these uh, slingshots, they were used the, used by the little boys to frighten the big boys. So that David Goliath type thing. Um, and the cardinal decided to turn this disparaging image into uh, the rebel symbol. And the uprising, now we became known as the fronde, which is the term for the slingshots. And the rebels became known as frondiers. They began to wear sashes in their hats that symbolize a slingshot and their word became the rallying cry. And without it, the rebellion might well have bithered out, withered out, whatever the key word is. Um, You always have to find a symbol to represent your cause. The more emotional associations, the better. The best way to use images and symbols is to organize them into a grand spectacle that awes people and distracts them from unpleasant realities. This is easy to do. People love what is grand, spectacular, and larger than life. Think about that. John Cena, The Rock, 2012, WrestleMania 28, larger than life. Appeal to their emotions, they will flock to you. In your spectacle, hordes in their hordes will flock to you. The visual is the easiest route to their hearts. Um, Here's the authority from Niccolo Machiavelli. The people are always impressed by the superficial appearance of things. The prince should, at fitting times of the year, keep the people occupied and distracted with festivities and spectacles. There is no reversal of this law. No power is made available by ignoring images and symbols. Okay? And think about that. They put on the Super Bowl. They put on the World Series. Sports do this all the time. We have elections. We have so many grand spectacles. And they go right over people's heads, even my own at times. If you want to get people to follow you, if you want to take some power you guys should put together some spectacles Mm -hmm. that was only law 37 law number 38 states think as you like but behave like others this is a good one this is a good one and this can go for any of you kids who feel unpopular in school at all just agree go with the crowd go with the crowd keep your beliefs but go with the crowd this doesn't mean give up your morals or values but just don't stand out too much or you will you will suffer. We'll get to an example in a second. If you make a show of going against the times, flaunting your unconventional ideas in unorthodox ways, people will think that you only want attention and that you look down upon them. They will find a way to punish you for making them feel inferior. It is far safer to blend in and nurture the common touch. Share your originality only with tolerant friends and those who are sure to appreciate your uniqueness. Very true. Very true. This goes for a lot of laws such as like not not making yourself look bad, not like Sharing too much with people—it's very much different with with your family and your trusted close friend group, you know. But when we're talking about people that you want to impress, people that you uh, need to have some form of approval from them, yeah, you need to you need to be more careful of what you say. The example it gave, which is a transgression of the law, which is mean the opposite of what you should be doing. Um, We're going back to 478 BC, the city of Sparta. You know, they sent an expedition to Persia, and it was led by a young Spartan nobleman, Ponsonius. And Ponsonius— basically was this excellent excellent general um excellent warrior great with his troops they took over the city um i believe it was what was it cyprus they then moved on to asia minor they then captured byzantium which is day astable and they began to work their way toward the the heart of the persian empire and along the way ponchinius just got this i don't know what it was it was like he just picked up this desire for persian lavishness okay persian robes um, Persian style banquets he became this whole idea of Persianness was just stuck through him and when he came back to Sparta he continued to dress in the Persian style speak like them act like them and eventually you know this started to annoy people you started to go, okay we don't want this we hate Persia we're going to attack them and you're dressing like them and you know people thought it would be a just a little phase, and he'd get over it, but no, and he'd tell people that they need to dress and act like Persians as well, and eventually people started to think that he was conspiring with the uh, king of Persia, who uh, Xerxes, of course, we all have heard of Xerxes. And, you know, after, after a while, you know, people just are like, okay, we'll just leave them be. And eventually Ponzinius actually did send a messenger to Xerxes, but the messenger instead went and told the Spartans, and the Spartans cornered him, said, we're going to go send you to jail. Instead, Ponzinius chose to re- uh, not retreat, but uh, no, he didn't chose to surrender. He chose to retreat, and he had just, like, held himself up in a temple, and the Romans stood outside with their swords, and Ponzanius starved to death all because he wanted to separate himself from the crowd. Right It's much better to behave like others. Um, here's an interesting quote by Ovid. Uh, Bene vex qu'e ben la tout. Ooh, very fun. He lives well who conceals himself well. He lives well who conceals himself well. This is one of... I know this, is, this relates to a thing I've heard where it's like, majority of people don't care how you get your money. They don't care how you make your money. They just care that you have money. And that's just so true. Okay? People... People don't care if you got something nice. No, no, no. People don't care how you got something nice. They only care that you got something nice. Right? People, that's just how people act. That's just how people are, unfortunately. Here's a quote by Sir Walter Raleigh Wise men should be like coffers with double bottoms, which when others look into being opened, they see not all what they hold. Okay, when you're looking into it, you're not going to see everything that's in the pouch. Right, very um very interesting. Very interesting chapter. A lot of fun quotes in this one. Here's one from Niccolò Machiavelli in a letter to Francisco Guicare, May seventeenth, fifteen twenty one. For a long time I've not said what I believed, nor do I ever believe what I say. And if indeed sometimes I do happen to tell the truth, I hide it among so many lies that it is hard to find. Mm. That's very good. You just you know, you cannot stand out. You cannot expand now. And they they gave another amazing example about uh, this guy named Tomaso Campanella, who was a Dominican monk and philosopher. Um, You know, he was an atheist. He was an atheist. So I don't really support that sort of mindset from him. But basically to save his life, he began to write uh, books about um, this Hispanic monarchy um, in Spain. And he basically hid in it. His own thoughts but in in the book he attacked free thinkers he basically like he put his thoughts it's almost like when you mock someone for doing something like when like your friend is like chewing super loud and you just go gosh don't you just hate when people chew super loud and they agree with you when they're doing it themselves so that's kind of what he did is he made people kind of like agree with him when they were doing the opposite of what he wanted and he able to keep he was able to keep himself alive through writing this book um which inspired so many other cop copies. He's had sympathizers for a while. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a pretty good example. But at the same time, he's an atheist mocking Christianity. Not my favorite. All right. The keys to this power is we all tell lies and we hide our true feelings. But for for uh, for complete free free expression is a social impossibility. You can't always be free. Um, from our early age, we learn to conceal our thoughts, telling the prickly and insecure what we know they want to hear, and watching carefully lest who we offend. But uh, for most of us, this is natural. You know, sometimes we can be that child. We can say whatever we want to people. Um, but, uh, you know, there are people, however, who see such restraints as intolerable infringements on their freedom and who have a need to prove the superiority of their values and beliefs. So you have to be careful not to offend those set people. Wise and clever people learn early on that they can display conventional behavior and mouth conventional ideas without actually having to believe what you say. And I've done this before. You know, I've done this before. I've been around people who are. Political, you know, they vote Democrat. They um, believe in transgender rights. They believe in like, you know, all this stuff. They believe in abortion rights and stuff. And I just kind of agree. I don't. I don't necessarily agree with them, you know. But they'll kind of go, Zach, what are your thoughts on this? And I just kind of go, you know what? I support. I support people choosing what they want to do. When at the same time, I'm choosing what I want to do if you get the gist of what I'm saying. And it's all about how you deal with these specific people. It's sort of like when you go into an interview, you want to look for the key words. You want to look for the key values of that company. Maybe even if you know who exactly is going to interview, you're going to learn about that person. And you tell people what they want to hear, not necessarily what you want to be saying, what you believe, but what they want to hear. Now, I will say the one thing with this for someone who is moral like myself is don't compromise your values, all right, but maybe under distress, maybe in a situation where you need to compress your values, don't die on honesty, okay, live on lies that, that, does that sound I came up with that came up with that on my own it doesn't sound as good. I don't really like the idea of lying all the time, but let me hit you with some fun quotes. this one's from the fables of Robert Luis. This is called the Citizen and the Traveler. Look around you, said the Citizen. This is the largest market in the world. Oh, surely not, said the Traveler. Well, perhaps not the largest, said the Citizen, but much the best. You are certainly wrong there, said the Traveler. I can tell you they buried the stranger in the dusk. All right, that was blunt. That was quick. But let me explain to you is that how many people, when you say a stat, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else, if someone says a stat, someone says a fact, and it's wrong, and you immediately correct them. All right, And then they go like, no, it's not. And you go, yes, it is. And they say another thing and you correct them. Oh, well, and this set thing, you know, the traveler, he's talking to the citizen. You know, he keeps correcting the citizen, keeps correcting the citizen, goes to correct him another time. And they buried him that night because he died. Drastic, but accurate. Here's a quote from Voltaire. Ooh, Voltaire. If Machiavelli had had a prince for discipline, the first thing he would have recommended him to do would have been to write a book against Machiavelli. Oh, not discipline, disciple. If he had a disciple, the first thing that he would recommend to do is write a book against Machiavellism. So sometimes if you talk, uh, if you write things against what you support, it also throws people off. Another amazing thing. The authority here. um, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's from Matthew 7, 6, spoken by the amazing, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I find it fascinating when you get quotes from the Bible that apply to some of these laws. And here's the image for you guys in regard to law number 38, just to repeat it again. Think as you like, but behave like others. The image is the black sheep. The herd shuns the black sheep, uncertain whether or not it belongs with them. So it straggles behind or wanders away from the herd, where it is cornered by wolves and promptly devoured. Stay with the herd. There's safety in numbers. Keep your differences in your thoughts and not in your fleece. Get it? Fleece. Sheep. There's a reversal of this. The only time it's worth standing out is when you already stand out. Okay, When you have achieved an unshakable position of power. Think of Lyndon Johnson. Think of the Roman Emperor Calugula. Think of Oscar Wilde who was um he achieved considerable social power. On this foundation, Is he made it clear that he disdained the usual ways of doing things. And when he gave public readings, his audiences not only expected him to insult them, but welcomed it. So, you have to follow the crowd until you can safely find a spot to distance yourself and not upset set crowds. This is for, you know, staying in, uh, not upsetting the people in power, you know, it's all these laws, it's, some are applicable in some situations, some are, it's all about where you choose to use these certain laws, and you know, you gotta be careful, you gotta be careful, I'm gonna be honest, you really do, because some people get way more upset, some people like to gossip, some people like to do all sorts of wonky freaking things, but I don't know, Law number 39, let's round out this t- uh, this episode's discussion of the 48 Laws of Power. Law number 39 is stir up waters to catch fish. This is a fun one. Judgment says anger and emotion are strategically counterproductive. You must always stay calm and objective. But if you can make your enemies angry while staying calm yourself, you gain a decided advantage. Put your enemies off balance. Find the chink in their vanity through which you can rattle them and you... Hold the strings. This is this is such a good one. I mean, the whole gist of this, and this this goes back to Napoleon. Napoleon knew that Talleyrand, his second-hand man, was plying against him. And at a conference meeting with all the other heads of his cabinet, if you will, he basically exploded on Talleyrand, basically calling him a liar for treason. Like, I will have you killed. And Talleyrand remained so calm. So complacent, never acted out. And everyone else was like, well, if he's so calm, he can't be guilty. And Napoleon, you know, Napoleon saw right through it, but he had an outburst. He embarrassed himself from his cabinet. So he actually never ended up doing anything with Talleyrand. There's so much power in remaining calm under pressure, calm. When someone insults you, I mean, even Jesus said it. If someone slaps you with their right hand, all right, turn your cheek and say, hit me with the left. You know, it's, it's all about you. Cannot, you cannot fight anger with anger. You'll never win. You'll never, ever win. Here's something from Arthur Schopenhauer. If possible, no animosity should be felt for anyone. To speak angrily to a person to show your hatred by what you say or by the way you look is an unnecessary proceeding, dangerous, foolish, ridiculous, and vulgar. Anger, or hatred should never be shown otherwise than in what you do, and feelings will be all the more effective in action. Insofar as you avoid the exhibition of them in any other way, it is only the cold blooded animals whose bite. Is poisonous. That's right. There's only the cold blood animals whose bite is poisonous. So you got to be careful. You really got to be careful. You know, you get bit by an eel. You get bit by a snake. You know, you get bit, by, get bit by a spider. You know, you can die. But you get bit by a dog. You get bit by a cat. You get bit by a frog. I don't know. Obviously, there's implications to this. But I think you kind of get what I'm saying. You got to be careful who you're messing with, who whose pot you're stirring up. They have another example of um, some people in Ethiopia it was about this. This one guy, uh, I think it was Gugasa or some Ras Gugasa, who was able to—no, no, no, I don't know who it was. It might have been Selassie or something, but he was able to stir up basically all the enemy tribes against one set guy, against one set leader. I think it was the Ras Gugasa guy I'm talking about, and Selise was able to get everyone teamed up against him, but Ragusa thought they were all going to be loyal to him. Sort of like a Game of Thrones, if you will. If anyone gets my Game of Thrones references, is basically if you think about where the North went around rallying up everyone to its cause when the Lannisters thought they were still going to be with them. You know, it's sort of like sort of like that. That, or actually when the when the Baratheons came to the aid of um, the Lannisters in season two of Game of Thrones, and Stannis thought they were going to side with him. So it's kind of like you know, if you can get people to stir up some fish you know catch some friends catch some friendly fish there you go here's a quote from the great sun Tzu from the fourth century a sovereign should never launch an army out of rage a leader should never start a war out of wrath how many how many dumb men have gone to war over just being angry about something happens too too often um, Here's an image for you The pond of fish The waters are clear and calm And the fish are well below the surface Stir the waters and they emerge Stir it some more and they get angry Rising to the surface Biting whatever comes near Including a freshly baited hook So if you can stir up those waters You can catch some fish And trust me, I know I know how to stir up certain people I know how certain people are How the irritated they can get How easily um, Another quote from Sun Tzu Amazing man from Japan If your opponent is of hot temper Try to irritate him if he is arrogant, try to encourage his egotism. One who is skilled at making the enemy move does so by creating a situation according to which the enemy will act. He entices the enemy with something he is certain to take. He keeps the enemy on the move by holding out bait and then attacks him with picked troops. And obviously the reversal of this law is when you play at people's emotions, you have to be careful. You have to study the enemy beforehand. Some fish are best left at the bottom of the pond. That is, That is an amazing quote right there. That is, that is an amazing quote, and the example he gave, which was within the leaders of the city of Tyre, um, in the capital of ancient Phoenicia, felt confident they could withstand Alexander the Great, who had just conquered the city right next to them. Um, Alexander the Great failed to get in to the city for four months and eventually he sent in a messenger offering like a peace treaty and the city of Tear killed the messenger and out of rage Alexander the Great spent all of his resources burning down the city destroying it in whole and selling every single member of the city of Tear to slavery very dark very rash but it pushed him over the edge so you got to be careful what fish you stir up you got to make sure that you can reel them in or else you'll get pulled into the sea and Eat. And these laws can be very brutal at times, but yet again, all in a, all in how you deal with them. The 48 Laws of Power, amazing a book as it comes. I, I very much like this book. I very much like it. It's coming to an end. It's coming to an end, unfortunately, as I continue to read through it. Eight more chapters. Eight more chapters, 40 to 48, then we'll be done. Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to take a quick break to get, uh, get some uh, water, my my voice voice, if you will, is very very chapped. And when I return, which will literally be a snap of the fingers for you, we are going to be talking about Scientology. A friend of mine brought this up to me, and I found it very fascinating. You know, we're talking about uh, how mysterious it was, all the conspiracies around it. And I figured, now okay, let me check this out. Let's get let the viewers check it out. So, without ado, let's take a look at what Scientology really really is. Hmm. So, so what is this thing of Scientology? I mean, I'll see. I've heard the term before. I've never really looked into it. So I figured we'd do a little, little uh, segment here on checking it out. So basically Scientology is a set of beliefs and practices, which was invented by the American author, Ron Hubbard. And it's basically a movement as well as often defined as a cult, a business, a religion, a scam, a new religious movement. Um, you know, it's it's. He eventually Hubbard initially developed it as a set of ideas they called dynetics, which uh, was a form of therapy. Um, It was actually established in 1950 uh, after—it was used to promote um, his organization after it went bankrupt, and he lost the rights to his book. He then recharterized his ideas as a religion, likely for tax purposes, and renamed it Scientology. By 1954, he had regained the rights to Dianetics and founded the Church of Scientology, which remains the largest organization promoting Scientology. Okay, that doesn't really— that doesn't really help, us. here's the definition. There we go. Um, the sociologist Stephen A. Kent views the Church of Scientology as a multifaceted transnational corporation, only one element of which is religious. The this historian, this historian of religion, Hugh Urban, describes Scientology as a huge, complex, and multifaceted movement. Government inquiries, international parliamentary bodies, scholars, law lords, and numerous superior court judges have described Scientology both as a dangerous cult and as a manipulative profit-making business. These institutions and scholars state that Scientology is not a religion. That's often what I hear about Scientology is that it's not really a religion. Um Scientology has experienced multiple schisms during its history while it's um was the, well the Church of Scientology was the original promoter of the movement various independent groups have split off to form independent Scientology groups referring to the different types of scientology um Wow, interesting so it's not just one thing there's it started as the Church of Scientology, but it's actually much more um Her urban describes Scientology as representing a rich, syncretic blend of sources, including elements from Hinduism, Buddhism, Thelma, new scientific ideas, science fiction, and from psychology and popular self-help literature available in the 20th century. The ceremony structure, the prayers and minister attire suggested by Hubbard reflect his own Protestant traditions. Hubbard claimed that Scientology was all denominational and the members of the Scientology organization are not prohibited from active involvement in other religions. Um, the scholar of religion, Donald Westbrook, encountered members who also practiced Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, um, Islamic stuff. One was a Baptist minister? Hmm. In practice, however, Westbrook noted that the church members consider Scientology to be their only commitment and the deeper their involvement becomes, the less likely they were to continue practicing other traditions. That's what I've heard is that they kind of loop you in. They kind of loop you in and tell, tell you you can't do anything else. You can't do anything else after you uh, join this. You have to isolate yourself from everyone. Very, very weird. There have been multiple, multitude of debates over the classification of what Scientology is. Um, And it's just been an ever-ending debate of whether it should be regarded as a cult, a business, or even a religion, and it continues to go on. Many Scientologists, if you will, consider it to be their religion, its founder L. Ron Hubbard presented as such. But the early history of the Scientology organization and Hubbard's policy derivatives, letters, and instructions to subordinates indicate that his motivation for doing so was a legally pragmatic move to minimize his tax burden, of course, when he went uh, bankrupt. After we mentioned earlier, in many countries, the Church of Scientology has engaged in extensive litigation to secure recognition as a tax exempt religious organization. Oh, how about that? And it has managed to obtain such a status in a few jurisdictions, including the U.S., Italy and Australia. The organization has not received recognition as a religious institution in the majority of countries which it operates in. An article in the magazine Time, um, of course a notable Time magazine, called The Thriving Cult of Greed and Power, described Scientology as a ruthless global scam. The Church of Scientology's attempts to sue the publishers for liability and to prevent republication were properly dismissed. Scholarships in psychology and skepticism supports this view of Scientology as a confidence trick to obtain money from its target. The scholar Benjamin Bett Hallam also observes that the majority of activities conducted by Scientology and its many fronts and subsidiaries involve the marketing of secular products. In a report by the European Parliament, it was observed that the group is a cool, cynical, manipulating business and nothing else that is a lot of whatever. I'm sure us what you think. You know, they—they're really all about their money. They really, really are. Um, and you know, the scholars and journalists—they know the profit of making money is the primary motivating goal of Hubbard Scientology groups. Um, wow, 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 wow. Um, there's actually a uh, something. Those making the observation have often referred to a governing financial policy issued by Hubbard that is to be obeyed by all Scientology organization staff members, which includes the following. Um, make sure that lots of bodies move through the shop. Make money, make money, make more money, make other people produce so as to make money. However you get in or why, just do it. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Some scholars have referred to Scientology as a religion. The sociologist Ryan R. Wilson compares Scientology with 20 criteria that he associated with religion and concludes that the movement could be considered as such. How is that? How is that? Oh, here's this criteria, a cosmology that describes a human reality beyond terrestrial existence, so like a heaven, ethics and behavior teachings that are based on this cosmology, uh, basically what Jesus shared, the Ten Commandments, prescribed ways for followers to connect with spiritual beings, prayer, and a congregation that believes in and helps spread its teachings. I guess, I mean that you can compare that to a lot of religions. Alan Black analyzed Scientology through the seven dimensions of religion set forward by the scholar Ninian Smart, and also decided that Scientology met those criteria for being a religion. Uh, a lot of other sociologists have said the same government bodies and other institutions maintain that it is just a commercial business that falsely claims to be a religion or is actually a form of therapy masquerading as religion. The French government describes it as a dangerous cult and the German government monitors it as an anti-democratic sect. Um, the notion of Scientology as a religion is, as a religion is strongly opposed by the anti-cult movement. It claims to be a religious identity that have been uh, particularly rejected in continental europe hmm. fascinating um, the word scientology is a derivation from a latin word scientia which is knowledge or skill and it comes from the verb skeer, which is to know with the suffix of course ology and from greek word or account hubbard claimed the word scientology meant knowing about knowing or science of knowledge hmm. fascinating this word has been published uh, at least twice before in um, Hubbard's time. In the New World, a poet and lawyer Alan Upward first used Scientology to mean blind up-thinking acceptance of scientific doctrine. So, yeah, you know, it's honestly kind of the same. They, the members are led blindly, if you will. And in 1934, philosopher Antizoius nordens published Scientology, Science of the Constitution, and Usefulness of Knowledge, which used the term to mean the science of science. So just like, you know, you're engineering, engineering. You're, uh... Um, I don't know what else. What else? Uh, your are mathing math. It is unknown whether Hubbard was aware of either prior usage of the word. So, brief history about Scientology for you. 1950s, Hubbard develops it. He saw the, he saw the advantages of having his movement legally recognized as a religion. He was all about that prophet. In an April 1953 letter to Helen O'Brien, his uh, U.S. business manager, he proposed that Scientology should be transformed into a religion. We don't want a clinic. We want one in operation, but not in name. It is a problem of practical business. I await your reaction on the religion angle. In reaction to a series of arrests of his followers and the prosecution of Hubbard's Dianetics Foundation for teaching medicine without a license, in December of that year, Hubbard incorporated three organizations, the Church of America Science, Church of Scientology, and Church of Spiritual Engineering. In 1959, Hubbard proposed St. Hill Manor in East Greenwich, Sussex, United Kingdom, which became the worldwide headquarters of the Church of Scientology and his personal residence. How about that? Living in a mansion. With the organization under heavy criticism, it adopted strong measures to attack in dealing with its critics. I've also heard of people in... Las Vegas, if you will, or just on the streets of places like Las Vegas that try and promote Scientology. And, you know, when people try and speak to them about escaping it, they get very weird. They get very antsy. They don't say much after that. Very, very fascinating. Um, in 1966, the organization established the Guardian's Office, or, or GO, if you will, which is an intelligence unit devoted to undermining those hostile towards Scientology they, they they don't have that. Is you know people who, Muslims Muslims don't have a, a an intelligence unit, okay? That stops people from uh, joining Islam. Christians don't have that. Buddhists don't have that. None of these religions have that. What? The Garden's office launched an extensive program of countering negative publicity, gathering intelligence, and infiltrating organizations. In Operation Snow White, the GO infiltrated the IRS and numerous other government departments and stole tens of thousands of documents pertaining to the church, politicians, and celebrities. Fast forward to July 1977, and the FBI raided church premises in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles, revealing the extent of the Guardian Office's infiltration into government departments and other groups. This sounds like something out of a Marvel storyline. You know, the, uh, was it Secret Wars, whatever? Not Secret Wars. What is it? Secret whatever. Or basically, uh, wait, what was it? Was it Secret War? Secret War, you know, the show with, um, the Skrulls and they've infiltrated society. It has Samuel Jackson in it and the one lady from Game of Thrones, I think I think that's exactly what this is. 11 officials and agents of the church were indicted. In December 1979, they were sentenced to between four and five years of prison time and individually fined $10,000. Among those found guilty was Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue Hubbard. Wow. In 1967, going back in time, Hubbard established a new group, the C-Organization, or C-Org, the membership of which was drawn from the most committed members of the Scientology Organization. By 1981, fast-forwarding to the future, the 21-year-old David Miscavige, who had been one of Hubbard's closest aides in the Sea org rose to prominence. Hubbard died at his ranch in Creston, California on January 24, 1986, and David Miscavige succeeded Hubbard as the head of the church. In 1993, the Internal Revenue Service, that's right, the IRS dropped all litigation against the Scientology Organization and recognized it as a religious institution, just like that. Just like that, the IRS was able to acknowledge it as a religious institution and thus was able to get some tax exemptions. Very... Very peculiar, if you will. Very, very peculiar. Um, let's talk about some of their beliefs and practices. Um, this is straight from Hubbard. A civilization without insanity, without criminals, and without war, where the world can prosper and us can have rights, and where man is free to rise to the greater heights are the aims of Scientology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want a better world. We all want a better world, buddy. Okay. Hubbard lies at the core of Scientology, and his writings remain the source of its doctrines and practices. He made himself a modern Jesus, a modern Buddha modern Muhammad, if you will. You know, obviously only Jesus is the real one. I'm sorry, you know, I'm not supposed to share my personal thoughts. <laughs> uh, sociologist of religion David G. Bromley describes the religion as Hubbard's personal synthesis of philosophy, physics, and psychology. Hubbard claimed that he developed his ideas through research and experimentation rather than through revelation from a natural a supernatural source. Wow. He published hundreds of books and articles over the course of his life, writings that Scientologists regard as scripture. In Scientology, Hubbard's work is regarded as perfect, and no elaboration or alliteration is permitted. Hubbard describes Scientology as an applied religious philosophy, because according to him, it consists of a metaphysical doctrine and a theory of psychology. And teaches morality, yeah, 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 let's refer back to the 48 laws of power, which is gain a cult following. Clearly, Hubbard knew how to do that. This man was using the 48 laws of power. He cannot fool me. He was creating spectacles, you know, stuff like that. Mm-mm-mm. Very, very not good. According to Scientology, its beliefs and practices are based on rigorous research, and its doctrines are accorded as significance equivalent to scientific laws. Blind belief is held to be of lesser significance than the practical application of Scientologist methods. Adherents are encouraged to validate the practices through their personal experience. What in the world? Hubbard put it this way, For a Scientologist, the final test of any knowledge he has gained is, did the data and the use of it in life actually improve conditions? Or didn't it? What? Many Scientologists avoid using the words belief or faith to describe how Hubbard's teaching impact their lives, preferring to say that they know it to be true. Wow. Central practice of Scientology is an activity known as auditing. Hmm. What? Okay, that's their main thing. Okay. It takes place with two Scientologists. One is the auditor who asks questions, and the subject is termed the preclear. The purpose is to help the subject to remove all their mental traumas. Hmm. Until they are given the status of clear and then continue doing further auditing until they are deemed to have reached the level operating theatin. What? Hubbard assigns vitality, good health, and increased intelligence to those who give the status of clear, having removed the source of their psychosomatic illness. The further status of operating theatin or OT, is poised as a complete spiritual freedom in which one is able to do anything one chooses, create anything, go anywhere, an idea which has appealed to many. Hmm all about manipulation all about leading people in the promise of something supernatural the promoted supernatural powers of operating theotin can best be summed up as this which came from hugh urban um in his book the church of scientology a history of a new religion the liberated Theotic could even freely create a personal paradise populating it with heavenly beings and infinite pleasure as well as such the theatin who truly realized his power to create and destroy universe would in fact be beyond god the has been deceived into worshiping such a god by mainstream religion, and so forgotten its own godlike power to create and destroy universe. Oh my guess. here we are! It's leading everyone on the promise of they are god, they can do whatever they want. Well, they're held back by other religions. Yeah, that's Satan for you. That's Satan. He'll do that to you if you're not take if you're not careful. Here's what all comes down to the money, though. Undertaking a full course of auditing with the Church of Scientology is extensive, extensive, expensive, my bad. Although the prices are not often advertised publicly, it can easily cost $400,000 to do the entirety of Scientology's Bridge to Total Freedom. In a 1964 letter Hubbard said that a 25-hour block of auditing should cost the equivalent of 3 months pay for the average middle class worker. In 2007 the fee for a 12 and a half hour block of auditing at the Tampa station was $4,000. Scientology organization is often criticized for the prices it charges for auditing. And examinations of the group have indicated that profit is the group's primary purpose. This sounds like something out of GTA and a Red Dead Redemption too. They have like their their fake cults in the game. And it literally sounds like it was a parody of Scientology. During auditing, a device called an electro is used. Wow. Scientology's primary roadmap for guiding a person through the sequential steps to obtain Scientology's concepts of clear and theotin is the bridge of the freedom, which is a large chart enumerating every step in sequence. The steps past clear are kept secret for most Scientologists and include the founding myth that seeks to explain Scientology doctrine. Wow. Another aspect is the soul. Hubbard taught that there were three parts of the man, the spirit, mind, and body. I guess, you know, I guess everyone has a spirit, mind, and body. The first of these is the person's inner self, which he calls a theotin. He mentioned that as akin to the idea of a soul or spirit. He stated that the theotin is the person. You are you in a body. Hubbard referred to the physical universe as the matter, energy, space, and time universe. Uh, This includes your body. Okay, Scientology refers to the existence of a supreme being, but practicers are not per- expected to worship it. No intercessions are made to seek this being assistance in daily life. So basically, it acknowledges there's a God, but doesn't want you to worship it. Yeah. Yeah, that's Satan for you. And I'm just saying, it's right there and there. Um, the mythical framework, which forms the basis for what Scientologists view as the systems path the salvation, is the story of Xenu. Xenu. X-E-N-U it is a strong science fiction theme with its what in the world? Scientology's teachings make references to a space opera termed annoying events in the distant past in which spaceships, spacemen, and intergalactic travel are all featured. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's move right on past this. The Scientology organization's cruise ship, the Free Winds, staffed by Sea Org members, yes, with OT symbol on each of its sides. Oh my gosh, I've heard about this. They literally have a boat. They have a cruise ship, which is basically you live on there and you practice um, Scientology. And there have been stories. There have been stories of how the bad things that happen on there, the abuse that women have suffered, that men have suffered. I mean, it's absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. They just showed a picture of the boat. It is a full Disney cruise ship size. Amazing. Ethics. Scientology has its own unique definition of ethics. Um, according to the scholar Stephen Kent, the purpose of Scientology ethics is to eliminate opponents, evil. That eliminates people's interest in things other than Scientology. That's right. That is right. They want you to completely forget about the rest of your life. Um, and Scientology would be able to impose its courses, philosophy, and justice system onto society. Oh my goodness! Just evilness. That's all I'm hearing as I read this. Uh, so, just Scientology is evil. Please don't kill me, Scientologists. I, I'm a good boy um a symbology hubbard created may symbolism concepts including the eight dynamics art triangles yeah it celebrates a seven calendar event including its founder ron hubbard's birthday the auditor's day and the new year and there's a sunday service which is primarily of interest for non-members and beginners wedding and funerals are also held, mm. so always try to sneak in a quick dollar um da, 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 da. scientologists view hubbard as an extraordinary man but do not worship him as a deity i don't believe that um they regard him as the permanent operating theotin who remained on earth in order to show others the way to spiritual liberation yeah he tried to make people think he was jesus or something Tale as old as time and he managed to do it he managed to use the four some of the 48 laws of power create a cult like following remain in power make people think that you need them Um, The superpower building of the Flag Scientology Complex in Clearwater, Florida, looks the size of a hotel. Let me just tell you, their main building in uh, Clearwater, Florida, is massive. Wow. The Church of Scientology. So there is a difference. The eight-pointed Scientology cross, one of the symbols created to give Scientology the trappings of a religion. Urban suggested it was modeled on the eight-point cross used by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Dude, this is wild. This is wild. I mean, the Church of Spiritual Technology Ranch in Creston, California, where Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard spent his last days. The CST symbol is visible within a racetrack. Holy cow. They just, it's all about money. That's all I'm seeing. It's all about money. Church of Scientology Celebrity Center in Hollywood, Los Angeles. Okay, here we go. Here's some interesting stuff, ladies and gentlemen. The Scientology organization employs a range of media to promote itself and attract converts. Hubbard promotes Scientology through a vast range of books, articles, and lectures. It publishes several magazines, including Source, Advanced, Otter, and Freedom. It has established a publishing press called New Era. Um, it has also used the internet for promotional purposes and employed advertising to attract potential customers, including high-profile locations such as television Answering the 2014 and 2020 Super Bowls. I have to go back and look at those. The organization has long-used celebrities as a means of promoting itself, okay? Very, very fascinating. Hubbard created a list of 63 celebrities targeted for conversion. Prominent celebrities who have joined the organization include John Travolta, that is right, Grease, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, Kirstie Alley, Kirstie Alley, let me see, Uh, Kirstie Alley, she looks kind of familiar, she was, um, she played Rebecca Howe in the NBC sitcom Cheers. Um, she was on Celebrity Big Brother. Okay, she's a celebrity. Nancy Cartwright. Nancy Cartwright was a voice on The Simpsons. Okay, something like that. Juliette Lewis. Um, the church uses celebrity involvement to make itself appear more desirable. Other new religious movements have similarly pursued celebrity involvement, such as the Church of Satan, Transcendental Meditation, ISK Khan, and Kabbalah Center. Ugh, I'm just getting some dark vibes from all this. Let me just tell you that. Let me just tell you that. Now, the social outreach of the church, they, do, um, they have been described as part of the Scientology's Organization's war against the discipline of psychiatry. Some critics regard this outreach as merely a public relations exercise. So they think the work they do to try and make themselves look like good in the social, like fighting drugs, um, fighting learning disabilities, fighting crime, you know, it's all just a public scheme. Um, they've had a lot of responses to opponents. The Scientology organization regards itself as the victim of media and governmental prosecution. Yeah, right. It sounds like, you know, the government and <laughs> has caught on to you guys. Um... Suppressive persons and fair game. Of course, yes, there have been a number, number of interest. There we go, the controversies. This is what we wanted. This is what what we all came to see. Um, Urban described the Church of Scientology as the world's most controversial new religion, while Lewis um, termed it arguably the most persistently controversial of contemporary new religious movements. According to Urban, the organization has a documented history of extremely problematic behavior ranging from Espionage against governmental agencies, which you've kind of heard about, two shocking attacks on critics. Okay. A first point of controversy was in response to its rejection by the psychotherapeutic establishment. Another was in 1991 Time Magazine article about the organization, which responded with a major lawsuit that was rejected by the court as baseless in early 1992. A third is the religious tax status in the United States. As the IRS granted the organization tax exempt since 1993. That I do find very, very sketchy. Um, bad number of controversies involving the uh, Church of Scientology, a majority are still ongoing. Criminal behavior by members of the organization, including infiltration of the US government. We already heard about that. Okay. Organized harassment of people perceived as enemies of the Church of Scientology. Yeah, if you criticize them, they'll get physical. It, 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 they'll get physical and I've seen uh, videos of this on TikTok, on Instagram on just YouTube and stuff of you know someone promoting it and someone goes up to try and talk to them and another person just comes out of nowhere and starts pushing them away, shoving them out of the way, trying to get them out and it, it is it's just very weird it's just its just—it's misplaced it's just very odd. Scientology's disconnection policy in which some members are required to shun friends or family members who are antagonistic to organization, that's right a key thing A key thing, and this is what anyone does to gain power over you, is if they can make you think that everyone else who doesn't think the same as you and your people is evil and they can separate you from them. Tale as old as time if you tell me. The death of Scientologist Lisa McPherson while in the care of the organization. Um, Robert Minton sponsored the multi million dollar lawsuit against Scientology for the death of McPherson. Robert Minton um, is uh, a millionaire who helped finance lawsuits against the Church of Scientology. That's actually his uh, page with the information about him. Um, in May 2004, McPherson's estate and the Church of Scientology reached a confidential settlement. Um, wow. Death of, uh, death of one of their members while in the care. Very scary. Attempts to legally force search engines to censor information critical of the Scientology organization. I've heard of that. I've heard that. I mean, come on, come on. A lot of people, a lot of people do this. China does this from what I've heard, Russia, especially North Korea, they censor stuff. Allegations: the organization's leader David Miscavige beats and demoralizes staff. Yep, and the physical violence by superiors always staff working. Um the staff working for them is a common occurrence in the organization. Scientology spokesman Tommy Davis denied these claims to provide witnesses to reboot them. I'm sure it's easy. I'm sure it's easy to um to uh get to get people to uh, you know, lie for you when you have so much power. Um, so Scientology social programs. Um, such as drug and criminal rehabilitation, have likewise drawn both support and criticism. Yeah, we mentioned that. Throughout the early 1950s, adherents of Hubbard were arrested for practicing medicine without a license, we mentioned that. Um, in January 1963, U.S. Marshals raided the church. Yes, in Washington, D.C. Hubbard's motives, common criticisms directed at Hubbard was that he drew upon pre-existing sources in the allegation that he was motivated by financial reasons. We know this. All right, we know this. I feel like I'm getting a, a gist of everything What's going on? Um, Criminal behavior, though. Here we go. Much of the controversy surrounding Scientology stems from the criminal convictions of core members. Author Paulette Cooper was indicted for making bomb threats after she was framed by agents of the Church of Scientology. Whoa, scary. In 1970, a number of Scientologists, including um, Hubbard's wife, yes, um, Operation Snow White, they involved in the trainwired documents, um, okay, be a raid on a church Okay, in Clearwater, Florida. Um, wow, among the documents, see, was a plan to frame Gabe Cazares, the mayor of Clearwater, Florida, with a staged hit and run accident. Nine individuals related to the case were prosecuted on charges of theft, burglary, and conspiracy. In 1988, Scientologist President Heber Gentsch and 10 other members of the organization were arrested in Spain on various charges, including illicit association, Christian fraud, and labor law violations. Yeah, probably... Because they abuse the people that work for them. We've heard about the cruise ship incident. In October 2009, the Church of Scientology was found guilty of organized fraud in France. The sentence was confirmed by the Court of Appeal in February 2012. In 2012 as well, Belgian prosecutors indicted Scientology as a criminal organization engaged in fraud and extortion. By March 2016, the Church was acquitted of all charges and demands to close its Belgian branch and European headquarters were dismissed. Hmm. <laughs> very interesting. Very, very interesting. Organized harassment. Scientology has historically engaged in hostile actions towards critics. We've heard about this. Um, they've switched from using members to using private investigators. Former Los Angeles police officers were used, according to a Los Angeles Times article in 1990. Oh my goodness! This is this is absolutely wild. This just absolutely wild. It just goes on and on. Allegations, of course, the abortions. What? What? The Sea Org. The Sea Org, that that giant cruise ship I was talking about, operated on vessels at sea where it was understood that it was not permitted to raise children on board the ships. Pregnant women in the Sea Org have stated that they had been pressured, extremely pressured to undergo abortions. Wow. Wow. A former high-ranking source reports that some 1,500 abortions have been carried out by women in the Sea Organization since the implementation of the rule in the late 80s. Source noted that and if many members who had been the organization for saying 10 years to do to have uh, kids they've dismissed it more than I don't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. Many former members have say they were pressured to undergo abortion. That is so sad. That is that is so sad allegations of human trafficking a number of women have sued the church of scientology alleging a variety of complaints including human trafficking rape forced labor child abuse in 2009 two former Sea org members mark and claire headley sued the church of scientology alleging human trafficking doesn't surprise me pick up a bunch of people at sea could easily transport them without anyone thinking twice wow 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 my goodness i think uh gosh it just you know they talk about disputes of um You know, uh, disputes of legal status, Scientology and Religious Studies, the influences it's had. Ooh, the influences it's had, been around for a while. Um, It's low-key been under wraps. As of the last few years, um, by the start of the 21st century, the organization was claiming it had 8 million members. Several commentators claim that number was cumulative rather than collective amount to the total number of people who've had some involvement at some point. Due to its internationally dispersed nature, it's difficult to determine the number of uh, Scientologists. In 2021, Thomas suggested that it was growing um wow oh, well, 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 well. recruitment here we go most members join the organization are introduced to it via friends and family that's a very very common thing It also offer offers free personality or stress tests typically involving an e-meter to attract potential recruits. it hopes that if non-scientologists purchase one service from the church and feel a benefit from it a win in church terminology that is they are more likely to purchase additional services the Church of Scientology's own statistics, published in 1998, revealed that 52.6% of those who joined did so through their friends and family. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. A 2022 YouGov poll on American attitudes toward religious groups ranked Scientology as the country's least favored group, with around 50% of respondents in Kane and a negative view of the practice, alongside Satanism. Oh, gee. Gee, why do you know? If, if, if your religion is close to Satanism, there might be something wrong. There might be something wrong. It might not be your, your your thing, okay? Let's end this out. Scientology has received an extraordinary amount of media interest. Hubbard often described journalists in negative terms, for instance, calling them merchants of chaos. And he discouraged Scientologists from interacting with them. Um, but um, sadly for them, academic research into Scientology took several decades, um, and they were able to link um, the media and the public interest together. And this attribute, this is that how they were to attribute to the church's secrecy Um, so eventually they worked their way into, uh, shows, South Park, uh, something called Troublemaker, a film called the master, bunch of, bunch of random stuff. Um, very, very, uh, very, very weird. Um, Scientology, you are, you are just very weird. A lot of very creepy, very weird. I don't like it. I don't like it, but now I know more about it. Now I know more about it. Uh, started by Ron Hubbard. Uh, meant as sort of a money scam. They've spread out all over. They kind of convince people to join them. There have been so many lawsuits. It's ranked on the same level as the Church of Satan and Satanism. Uses celebrities to promote it. Who knows what evil stuff goes on all around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, be aware of Scientology, but do not, and I repeat, do not join it. My goodness, my my goodness. And you know what? It's so weird. I have no good transition. Into UFC Mexico City predictions for this upcoming fight night weekend. I just, I got nothing for you guys. You just gotta, you just gotta accept that. Um, that's dark. It is dark. Scientology, Scientology. Wow. Let's, uh, let's move on. But that was very fascinating. Hope you're all able to learn a bit more about Scientology. I certainly did. I certainly learned from this. And man, they would never want to talk about it. Let me know, but without further ado, let's end on a happy note. Let's end on a positive note, if you will, as we will be previewing all 13 fights currently planned for the weigh for UFC Mexico City going down this Saturday in Mexico City, Mexico. So strap in, get your prediction boots ready because we got a lot of fights to talk about. Kicking off our first fight of the evening, we head to the featherweight division, and by the way, on the year 40 and 18 on predictions, so we are hitting at way over uh, 40% on our predictions. Actually, actually, let me, do a, let me do some quick math for you. I mean, 40 divided by 58, we're hitting at 69%. That's pretty comical. We are hitting at 69% of our uh, predictions on the year, so... Let's get it going. Featherweight division. Kicking off the night, we have Eric the King Silva taking on Muhammad Hillman Naimov. Interesting nicknames here. Eric Silva, 9-2 and two professionally. Muhammad Naimov, 10-2. and two. Both fighters are 5'9", 71-inch reach for Eric Silva, 70 for Muhammad Naimov. And both fighters have an orthodox stance. Pretty similar. Pretty freaking similar. Muhammad Naimov, the 29-year-old, is from Tajikistan. Trains that elevation fight team, though, in uh, Colorado, of course, elevation fight team Corey Sandegan, Curtis Blaze, Neil Magny trains there. And um, one interesting thing I'll say is the Mexico City elevation is going to play a huge role. So immediately when I see someone who trains at elevation, um, since Mexico City's high in the air, I immediately lean towards them for my uh, prediction. But Maman Naimov is uh, of his ten and two wins. I mean, four four by KO, three by sub. He's never been finished. Both of his losses are by decision, and he's currently on a five five win streak. And he fought on Dana West Contender Series back in twenty twenty, lost to Colin Anglin, got out grappled, did step in on short notice in June of twenty twenty three last year, knocked out Jamie Malarkey in round number two, vicious. Then in Abu Dhabi in October, fought Nathaniel Wood, won by unanimous decision in a competitive fight. This this fighter this fighter super good mom and naimov excited to see what you bring to the table His opponent, Eric Silva, 36 years old, from Venezuela, of his nine victories, three by knockout, four by sub. Both of his losses are by submission. Um, He was on an eight-fight win streak before he fought his uh, first UFC fight back in December of 2022, got submitted by TJ Brown in round number three. So that's right, he hasn't fought since December of 2022, about a year and three months. It's been a while, and if anything... If anything, I mean, all the signs point towards Muhammad Naimov. I mean, he beat a tough guy in the thing it wouldn't. a thing it what's always been on the brink of the featherwood, featherweight rankings, and now he's taking on a guy in Eric Silva. Eric hasn't fought in a full year. Last time he fought, he lost. Muhammad Naimov's on five-fight win streak, been knocking boys out. So if anything, it comes down to how do I think, you know, Muhammad Naimov is going to get the win. I mean, and first off, I think submission. I'm leading submission for my, my Muhammad Naimov pick. As far as takedowns go, uh, Eric Silva lands more, averages 3.94 per minute in his two UFC uh, promotions that we can do. He has an 80% takedown accuracy, 71% takedown offense, but we don't have much to go off of. That's why I say that a lot of that comes from his dominant win on the contender series. So I am going to pick Muhammad Naimov to win. I don't know which way though. I know I have to say, I know I have to say which way I think he's going to win. So we're going to give him a round, round two sub, round two sub for Muhammad Naimov. But. I really like that pick. I think his cardio is going to play a huge aspect in him getting the win. And even, you know, I could even see a similar situation where Eric Silva got submitted in round three back in December of 2022. I could see the same thing happening, him getting submitted in later rounds. But... That's just how it goes. Let's move along to our next bout. It should be a fun one in the men's flyweight division as Victor El Magnifico Altarimino takes on Felipe, Felipe Di Tona Dos Santos. By the way, it's Victor Altamirano versus Felipe Dos Santos. Those nicknames go crazy, her. Yeah, nicknames. Um, Victor Altarmino, 12-3. and 3, Felipe, 7-1 with one no contest. 5-8-5-7 gives Victor one inch in height. Both fighters have a 70-inch reach. Switch stands for Victor. Felipe, he's orthodox with that right old hand of his. And let's start off with Victor Altarmino. He's our first Mexican fighter from the night. And by the way, there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. There's 10 fighters who are technically from Mexico, but I did get 12 who claim that they are Mexican. Um, so uh, uh, that's just Brian Ortega and Raul Rosas Jr. born born in the United States, lived in the United States, but they do um, they are Mexican inherited. So don't be surprised to see them repping them. But Victor the 33 um, year old, is from Mexico City. Does now live and train in Texas. Of his 12 victories, two by knockout, four by sub. So only finishes about 50% rate. Victor, repping um, the Golds uh, country of Mexico in his home city as well, where he was born and grew up, joined uh, the UFC off daniel anyway's contender series in 2022 after getting a win on the contender series. Um, Would we'll lose a split decision there with then TKO Daniel Lacerda. We'll get to him later. Uh, then beat Vincea Salvador and back in June, uh, was his last fight. He stepped in on short notice to fight Tim Elliott would get just atrociously out grappled, taken down six times for 11 minutes, uh, but did show his grit in that fight. So Tim Elliott, too big of a step up, by the way, Tim Elliott is the number 10 men's flyweight in the world. So I should say about how good, how good he is, but he didn't get finished by him. He didn't get finished by him and he even took Tim down. At one point, his opponent, Felipe dos Santos from Brazil, 23 years old. He's only two years older than me. Of his seven victories, two by knockout, three by submission, made his UFC debut on short notice against Manel Cape back in September of 2023 at UFC 293 and fought him to a fight of the night unanimous decision. He even won a a round on two judges' scorecards, all right? And he he almost got knocked out by Manel Cape. In round number one, managed to fight his way back and might have won the second round, if we're being honest. I mean, just an absolutely crazy debut to have a fight of the night against Manel Cape. That's really all I needed. That is, that is really all I needed. And I'm. Uh, this is a fun fact. There are four Mexico versus Brazil matchups on this card going down at the arena, CDMX, um, in Mexico City. And I'm really torn on this because I, I know how good Victor Altamriano is. He can also grapple. He could also grapple. I do think that is something that I didn't see from Felipe in the middle Cape fight. He struck me more as a striker. As for Victor, I mean, in his fight against El Salvador, landed three takedowns on the Contender series, landed four, landed one against uh, Carlos Hernandez. But he has been taken down um, five times, eleven times. So I think he's actually been taken down more than he's taken people down. I liked what I saw from Felipe in his debut. And usually when I see a flyweight perform like that, i got to ride with them again. So give me Felipe Dos Santos. I mean, if you're taking someone like Manel Cape, a top 10 men's flyweight, into a close decision, I mean, you've got to be good. I'll say unanimous. I'll say unanimous because I have a lot of finishes on this card. I can't get carried away with finishes. But I am going with Felipe Dos Santos, confident in that pick, as I am pretty confident in that. Moving into our next fight, we're staying at flyweight. We actually have like one, two, three, four, five, five flyweight fights on this card. Huh, how about that? In this flyweight matchup, we have another Mexican man and Ronaldo Rodriguez. Nickname is Lazy Boys. He takes on the Ukrainian Dennis Bonder. Nickname is Psycho ronaldo rodriguez 16 and 2 professionally dennis bonder 14 and 4 both men are 5 six, 4 inches in reach for dennis bonder 69 to 65 and both fighters have an orthodox stance um, so matches up pretty pretty good uh, i'll start off with ronaldo rodriguez from mexico 24 years old of his 16 victory 7 by knockout 4 by sub other uh, other three year by decision, currently on a five fight win streak. He last fought in May. He's only had one fight under the the, the UFC banner, fought on season four Danewise Contender Series, didn't get a contract, but since then left has dominated the promotional scene. Ronaldo Rodriguez, happy to see what you bring to the table. His opponent, Dennis Bonder, of course from Ukraine. Dennis is thirty one years old, actually from Kriev, Ukraine, of his fourteen victories. Four knockouts, 13 subs. Uh, That's not right. That is not right at all. Um, He was, what is going on here? 14 and four. Oh, he has 13 subs. He's been KO'd three times. Wow, I got to read my notes much better. So that's, that's actually a really good stat to know. Um, Des Bonder was on a nine-fight win streak before losing his UFC debut to Malcolm Gordon. Last fought Carlos Hernandez in June of last year. Lost unanimous decision. Um, and you know, that was, that was pretty tough. That was pretty tough for Bonder. He definitely came out as a submission guy in his last fight. But I mean, when you have 13 submissions of your 14 wins, um, wowza. Gosh, I don't know now. Um, you know, Ronaldo Rodriguez, I already picked against Mexico one time. Give me Ronaldo Rodriguez over Dennis Bonder. Anything can happen. It's just one of these prelims. It's 50, 50. I don't have much for either guy to go off of. It is very tricky. But I'm going to go with Ronaldo Ronaldo Rodriguez just simply because of the knockouts, because of the ability of what he has. And as bonders, just really shows a one-dimensional approach of just attempting submissions, which never really goes well. We saw that happen last weekend with uh, the Ecuadorian. What was his name? He lost to uh, Rinya Nakamura. I can't even remember his name. That's how irrelevant he was. Let's keep it rolling. we got a lot of fights to get through, and we're only on the prelims. Lightweight matchup up next. This is a fun one. Claudio, Prince of Peru, Puelez takes on Fares. Smile Killer, ZM. I love that nickname, Smile Killer. Claudio, Puelez, 13-3. and 3. Fares, Ziam 14-4. and one to 5'10 gives Fares a 3-inch height advantage and a 3-inch reach advantage, 75-72. to 72. Southpaw stands for Claudio. Orthodox for Fares, ZM. Let's start off with Claudio, Puelez. Prince of Peru gave it away. That man is from Peru. He's 27 years old. He actually went to Cambridge University. He's a smart boy um claudio has two ko's and seven subs last fought though in november of 2022 where he got finished round two by dan hooker before that he was been on a three fight a four, five fight win streak wow insane I will say this one thing about Claudio Puelas is this is a one-dimensional fighter. This is a one-dimensional fighter, just like Dennis Bonder. This guy just attacks submissions. He actually has the record for most knee bars in UFC history. He has three knee bar finishes. Doesn't really strike much against Dan Hooker. All he did was pull guard. Failed miserably, just proceeded to get beat down and beat down and beat down. Eventually, he got, ate a body kick, and then he just laid on the ground that, that he was over. But you know what? In April of 2022, he did get a knee bar over Clay Guido, probably the biggest win of his career. But unfortunately for Claudio Paul, we'll have to see what he does against the smile killer. Fair as I am, the 26-year-old, is from France. Of his 14 victories, 4 by knockout, 5 by sub. Of his 4 uh, losses, 3 are by submission, which is very notable. Fair as I am is 4-2 in the UFC. Um most notable fight was probably against Terrence McKinney. Got submitted in two minutes back in February of 2022. Ferris fought once last year in July, beating Jai Herbert in Great Britain, the UK. Yeah, this is tough because I know how good Ferris I am is. He said he was very confident, wanted to be fighting for a rank spot by the end of the year. But of his four losses, three are by submission. I could easily see Claudio getting one in. So because of that, you know, even though he's one-dimensional, I am leaning towards Claudio Puelles. He does gas out too. He does gas out. So I am gonna say round one sub. It's one and done for Claudio Puelles. If it makes it to round two, give me uh, fair as I am. But we're picking Claudio Puelez just to do it. Um, I don't. You know, all Claudio does is hunt submissions. So um, does he have a – yeah, he averages 1.4 per minute, 1.4 submissions per minute. Okay, you know how crazy that is? You know how many minutes he's fought in the OC, My goodness. All right, let's keep it rolling. Back down to our flyweight boys, and this one is chaotic. Edgar Piero Chicheli Charez takes on Daniel Miojo Lacerda. So Edgar Cherez versus Daniel Lacerda. Edgar, ten and five with one no contest. Daniel Lacerda, eleven and five with one no contest. Five-seven to five six, one inch in reach or height for Edgar Charez. He also has an inch in reach, seventy-one to seventy. Orthodox for Edgar Charez Switch dance for Daniel Lacerda. And these two got history. These two got history. This is the third time this fight has been scheduled. First time there was a premature stoppage after Edgar Charez had Daniel Lacerda in a guillotine. Uh, that fight went down at UFC Noche. It was then t- tried to be rebooked for December and January. It fell through. Never happened. Finally, finally this fight was able to take place. Let's get it. Let's kick it off. Edgar Piro Pirochichali. I don't even know what that means. He is a Mexico boy, home man. Well, he was the one who had the submission over Daniel Lacerda when the fight was prematurely stopped. 28 years old of his 10 victories, 4 by knockout, 6 by sub. That's on 100% finish rate. And this is the third time this fight has been scheduled, as I mentioned, um... Eggers actually fought Clayton Carpenter on Dan West's Contender Series in August of 2022, uh, got brutally beat. Uh, then in July of 2023, fought Tetsuo Terra to a decision, actually dropped him, but Tetsuo Terra's superior ability showed later in the fight. Last time he was actually in an octagon, September, at UFC Noche, where the premature stoppage happened against Daniel Lacerda. And his opponent, Daniel Lacerda, the 27-year-old from Brazil, 11 victories, 5 KOs, 6 subs, another 100% finish rate. He's never gone the distance in his career, all right? All five of his losses have been, uh, he's either been knocked out or been submitted. Actually, he's been KO'd four times, one sub. Um, The last time he won was in 2021. Before he was even in the UFC. That's right. He is 0-4 with a no contest in the UFC. Been finishing all of them. 2021 loses his debut to Jeff Molina. Gets knocked out in round two. Gets knee barred by Francisco Figueredo in twenty twenty two. Gets TKO'd by Victor Altaramino in round number one. I mean just oh my gosh, atrocious. And it was beating CJ Vergara in March of 2023 when CJ Vergara pulled off one of the Vergara pulled off one of the greatest comebacks I've ever seen, won my comeback of the year for my twenty twenty-three UFC awards. That was a fight of the night. Fortunate for him, the Edgar Charez fight just did not go his way. I don't know if I see Edgar Charez knocking him out, but guess what? We're gonna pick it. We're in Mexico. Edgar was dominating them last time. Give me Edgar Charez round two KO. Round two KO for Edgar Charez. Charez, however you want to phrase it. Very very fun. Stay up flyweight, ladies and gentlemen, as Jesus Aguilera takes on Matus Bokawa Mendonca. Jesus Aguilera, 9 and 2. Matus, 9 and 2. 5'6 to 5'4 gives Matus a 2-inch height advantage and a insane 9-inch reach advantage. 71 inches of 62. Jesus Aguilera only has a 62-inch reach. I see that in the small women. Insane, insane orthodox stance for both of these gentlemen Let's start off with the Mexican boy, Jesus Aguilera. He is from Mexico. He's 27 of his nine victories, won by KO, six by sub. And um, both of his losses have been by submission as well. If that's of any notable stature, I don't know if it is. But yeah, both of his losses have been uh, by submission. Jesus Aguilera won his uh, Dane White's Contender Series fight on season six in 2022. Got a round three guillotine choke. Then got submitted with a triangle armbar in round number one in February against Tetsuro Tera In July, though, had a 17-second knockout of Shannon Ross. I do want to point out, though, that Shannon Ross was KO'd in all four of his UFC fights. So, he pretty much landed a gigantic overhand, which landed perfectly. Other than that, this dude is known to submit. Nothing else. Okay, not nothing much else. Plus, that reach is really, really drawing attention for me. His opponent, Matheus Mendonca, another Brazil matchup here, um, 25 years old. He trains at shoot boxing with um, De- Diego Lima, which is actually where Charles Oliveira trains. Um, same gym as Felipe Dos Santos, actually, fighting early on the prelims. So we got some teammates. Um, three KOs and three subs make up his 10 victories. One on season six of Daywind's Contender Series as well. Got a 48-second knockout. But then, unfortunately, in January of 2023, he had to fight Javed Bashrat in his debut. That went to a decision. Might I add, Javid Bashrod is 14-0. So, you know, going the distance ain't too bad. But in October of 2023, he was brutally TKO'd by Nate Manez in round number one. Got knocked out uh, standing, TKO'd, actually. Um, so this is tough to say what will happen. Javid Bashrod took him down. Matus can clearly strike. Jesus Aguilera, I mean, I guess I got to go with Matus Mendonca by a round one knockout. I mean... And let me tell you why. It's that reach. Is that reach a 9-inch reach advantage? That is crazy. 9-inch reach advantage that's got to prove beneficial in this one. Moving into our final prelim of the night, and there's our final Brazil-Mexico matchup of the evening as we head to bantamweight as Christian Problema Quinones takes on Rayoni Barcelos. Christian, 18 and 4. Rayoni, 17 and 5. One inch in height for Christian Keyones, five 5'8 to 5'7. Three inches in reach for him as well, 70 to 67. Both men have an orthodox stance. Christian Kionis, 27 years old from Tijuana, Mexico. Another Mexican boy of his 18 victories 10 by knockout, 3 by sub. And he's never lost a decision. 5 and 0, oh, 5 and 0. Oh. In all decisions, his four losses, he's been finished. One on season five of Dana White's contender series. Made his UFC debut in September of 2022, getting a round one knockout. But then, in his one fight last year in June, got submitted by Kyung Ho Kang. Knocked down, taken down, and submitted. Did not go well for Christian Quinones. I'll say that. Kind of seemed like a bum. Kind of seemed like his stats were padded against not lesser superior talent. And he draws a big name in Rayoni Barcelos, who has only fought killers, only fought killers for the longest time. Mroni Barcelos is 36 from Brazil. Eight KOs and two subs make up his 17 victories. He's had ten canceled bouts in the UFC, though. I find that incredibly notable. Not in the last like three uh not in the last like year, but I will say he's had ten canceled bouts. This dude's been in the UFC since twenty eighteen. That's crazy was originally on a ridiculous win streak. It was up to like 10 before he uh, lost a bad decision to Timur of in June of 2021. By the way, actually holds wins over Saeed Nurmagomedov and Chris uh, Gutierrez. Actually, Kurt Holmo winner of the last season of Ultimate Fighter. After that, lost a close decision to Victor Henry. Managed to beat Trevin Jones, got knocked out brutally by Umar Namagomedov last year on the first uh pay-per-view or first fight night of the year. I will say Umar Namagamedoff is ridiculous. Last fight in August, um, he lost to Kyler Phillips by unanimous decision. Really ripped out the grappling in that one. Three takedowns, only a minute. A three of eleven, so he was just shooting and shooting. Raoni, thirty-six, one and four, his last five. This is a tough one for me, because I don't think Christian Quiotes. Is very good. But all I've seen is Raoni Barcelos fighting tough opponents. We are in Mexico. Has Raoni Barcelos ever been KO'd? No, by Umar. But he, Kyler Phillips dropped him. Kyler Phillips dropped him. Um, Matchup preview. Christian does have some advantages in reach and stuff. Raoni does land more strikes per minute. Is more accurate. Has better defense. Lands more takedowns um defense takedowns more yeah give me give me roundy barcelos by decision i mean everything's just telling me browny barcelos by decision so that'll do it right barcelos my prediction to round out the prelim so as we go through our first was it seven fights one two three four five six seven uh maybe Uh, No, I thought there were 13 fights. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, so our first seven fights, I'm giving Mexico only two wins. Yikes, splitting with Brazil in their little matchup. Mohamed Naimov over Eric Silva by round two submission. Felipe Dos Santos being the Mexican victor. Altermino by unanimous decision. Ronaldo Rodriguez getting, um, I didn't even predict how he would beat Dennis Bonder. Uh, I'll say round one knockout just because I'm feeling ballsy right there. Round one knockout for, um, Ronaldo Rodriguez, Claudio Pulas over Fairzam, round one sub. Edgar Cherez knocking out Daniel Serra in round two. Matus Mendoka, round one knockout of Jesus Aguilera and Rione Barcelos Unanimous decision. With that, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into our main card. Let's round out the episode as this main card looks absolutely amazing. No, it's actually like a really good uh, fight night of, uh, main card. Kicking us off at lightweight, we have Manuel Eloco Torres taking on Chris the Problem Duncan. I see all the MMA pages. I see Dana White saying, keep your eyes on this fight. Manuel Torres, 14 and 2. Chris Duncan, 11 and 1. Both men are 5'10. 73 to 71 inch reach, 2 inches for Manuel Torres, which stands for Emmanuel Orthodox for Chris Duncan. Let's get it kicked off with Manuel Torres. He is from Mexico, 28 years old of his 14 victories, 7 by knockout, 6 by sub. Both of his losses are actually by submission, but he is currently on a five-fight win streak. His last loss was in 2019. May's debut on Season 5 of the Dan White's Contender Series with a two-minute knockout. UFC debut in May four, May in 2022, round one performance at night TKO. Then, June 2017, a minute and 50-second knockout. Nicholas Moto, which one of the most brutal elbows I've ever seen, hit him with an elbow, leaning in, and Moto went to sleep, literally slumped down, to the octagon. I mean, it was brutal. Manuel Torres is an absolute killer. Oh my goodness, so excited to see him fight. His opponent, Chris Duncan, 30 years old from Scotland, Scotland, if you will, trains at and AT&T. Uh, ATT has many facilities, most notably the one in, uh, I believe it's Florida, with Dustin Porian and Horry Moswell training. Of his 11 victories, seven by knockout, one by sub, and he's currently on a four fight win streak. Originally fought on a Days and contender series season five, got knocked out by Vacheslav Borshev. That was the last time he lost. Came back on season six in 2022, had a crazy comeback against Charlie Campbell, knocking him out in round one. UFC debut last year in March, would beat Omar Morales by split decision. Last fight out in July, beat Yanal Ashmoz by unanimous decision. I'm sorry to say this, Chris Duncan, but you are going to get brutally, and I mean brutally knocked out in round number one, because Manuel Torres is a Force, a force to be reckoned reckoned with in this men's lightweight division. I have it written down on Verdict MMA. Follow me, ZR2002 on the app as we're going Manuel Torres round one knockout. I mean, come on. Come on. His last three fights, he's got a round one knockout. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Ain't lost since 2019. I've seen Chris Duncan get hit before, you know, the Charlie Campbell fight, the Viches Love knockout. Yeah, he's not eating a clean punch from Manuel Torres. Let's keep us moving. As we head to the women's strawweight division, I believe this is our one and only women's fight of the whole night. How about that as a Yasmin Jeraguay takes on Sam Sampage Hughes. Yasmin is 10 and 1, Sam is 8 and 5. 55 five to 53 five, gives Sam 2 inches in height. Both women have a 64 inch reach advantage and stand in the orthodox stance. Let's talk about Yasmin first from Mexico, actually Tijuana if you will. 24-year-old of her 10 victories, 7 are by knockout, and she suffered her first professional defeat last July, got KO'd shockingly in 20 seconds by Denise Gomez, just got blitzed, blitzed and got caught cleaned and just got knocked out. Now, she did make her UFC debut against Yasmin Lucindo in one of the best women's fights I've ever watched at UFC Fight Night, Vera versus Cruz, then managed to TKO uh, Estela Nunez in December of 2022. Look, absolutely. Here's the thing: Yasmin gets rocked. She fires back punches. It is tough to tough to really say. But the one advantage she's got going for her is she takes on Sam Hughes, 31 year old from Washington, trains at Fortis MMA, same gym as Jeff Neal, rents band, Um, offers eight victories, two by knockout, three by sub, and she is three and four in the UFC, losses to Tisha Torres, Luma Luke Boomi, and Luiana Nero. Um, wins over Stella Nunez, Elise Reed lost to Pierre Rodriguez last fought in April 2023 guy States, win over Jacqueline Amorim Look, let me just tell you straight up, I do not think Sam Hughes is a good fighter. I, I honestly, I just do not see it. I'm seeing a round two TKO from Yasmin Jaraguay standing TKO drops or something. Sam Hughes has given me nothing. She's one of those women, straw weights, who just is so mediocre, doesn't really do anything too fantastic, and just kind of... Gets by and fights. Don't even know how she made it to the UFC. No offense to you, Sam. I'm just being a cruel, cruel little boy. But, I mean, Yasmin Jaraguay, she's a badass, okay? Um, she is. She's younger, too. Yeah, 24 to 31 um, of her 10 victories, 7 by knockout. I said, yeah, she's getting her 8th knockout in round number 2. Yasmin Jaraguay, my prediction. Just, just going up from here, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, these are just some fun, fun fights. We head to the bandwagon division next as a crowd favorite, just a people pleaser, as Raul Rosas Jr., El Nino Problema, takes on Ricky Tercios. Raul Rosas Jr., 8-1, Ricky 13-3. Both men are 5'9", 4 inches in reach, though, for Ricky, 71-67. to 67. Switch stands for Rosas Jr., Orthodox dance for Ricky Ticky Time Bomb. Not his nickname. That's just what I was calling him. Raul Rosas Jr. He is a Mexican man, but you know, I'm not. Not born in a not born in Mexico, born in New Mexico, actually now lives in a, I think, Los Angeles, or maybe in Texas. California it might be. I think it's California somewhere. But he is not really a man. He is nineteen years old. That's right, he's a teenager of his eight victories. Two now, two by knockout, five by sub. Um, he was fifteen years old when he made his first amateur de- fight a debut. I mean in crazy 17 years old first pro debut. This guy's ridiculous. Fought on season six of Dana White's contender series, gotta win. In his UFC debut, December 2022, got around one submission. Insane. Lost his first professional fight to Christian Rodriguez back in twenty back in April of last year. Tough loss, but rebounded with a 54 second TKO. Got 50k for it. Uh finish of Terrence Mitchell in round number one. Raul Rosas Jr., a sensation. People love him, people hate him. They tune in to watch him fight. Um, his opponent, Ricky Tercios. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, Ricky Tercios is one of the most boring fighters I've ever seen. He actually won the bantamweight division of the Ultimate Fighter on Season 29 back in 2021. Um, Ricky, uh, 30 years old, from Houston, Texas. Transit Team Alpha Male, same gym as Riot Faber, Sonja Dong, Josh Hammett, Chan Mendez. Of his 13 victories, three KOs, one sub. That's right, nine decisions. Since joining the UFC, he's gone 2-1. and one. Um, Beat Brady Heistad, but lost to Ayman Sahabi. Beat Kevin Natividad back in November 2022. So he has not fought in right around a year and four months. Look, Raul, I don't think he's going to finish him in round one, but I think he's getting that round two submission. Raul Rosas Jr., a submission expert. And, I mean, just oh, Ricky Tercios is unbearable. He's so weird. Just gives off a weird, just a weird dude. Just a weird dude. Raul Rosas Jr., handle business, my comrade. You're younger than me. Go make them 50 Gs. Uh, Not even our co-main event. Wow. Lightweight matchup up next as Daniel Golden Boy Zaluber takes on Francisco Prado. Francisco Prado. Uh, Daniel Zaluber is a Mexican man from Mexico, 24 years old. Trains at Extreme Couture. Same gym. As uh, what's his what's his face same gym as uh, Sean Strickland Chris Curtis those types of boys you know that the world beaters at middleweight seven KOs and three subs make up his 14 victories and he's never been finished his only loss was by decision Francisco Prado 21 years old from Argentina of his 12 victories six knockouts six subs 100% finish rate yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. He was 17 years old for his pro debut, and Francisco's only loss was by unanimous decision. Uh, Zaluber, you know, he's 14 and one. Francisco Prado, 12 and one. Just excellent matchmaking. Three inches in height for Zaluber, six one to five ten. Uh, a notable eight inches in reach, 77 to 69 in favor of the golden boy, Daniel Zaluber. Switch stands for Daniel, orthodox for Francisco Prado. Daniel Zaluber. been in the UFC since 2021, where he won on Daniel's Contender Series. Unfortunately, he lost his debut to Trey Ogden. Close fight. Two fights last year. Beat Lando Venado in April. Then submitted uh, Christiagos Giagos. Oh, Tough competition. With an Anaconda choker and himself 50K performance bonus back in September at UFC Noche. Happy to see Daniel Zuber back at it. Francisco Prado, as we mentioned, 100% finish rate. Losses have UFC debut in February to um, Jamie Malarkey, but came back in July. Knocked out Ottoman as a tear in round one. This should be a competitive fight. The eight inches in reach, the grappling. I'm going with Zaluber by submission. Just did it last time. I think that's kind of a kind of theme. I do think that's the theme of Zaluber's game plan for this one. You don't want to stand with Prado. You do not want to stand with him, but you take him down. You have no issue. That's right. Give me that round two submission. And now we get into, basically, this is a two-fight main event, all right? Two massive fights on this, on this card. Absolutely pumped for it. Let's get into it with our first, our co-main event, I should say. It's more of the, it's, it's on the main event level. As Yair El Pantera Rodriguez takes on Brian T. City Ortega, Yair is ranked number three at men's featherweight. Brian Ortega ranked fourth, fourth. Such a good fight. By the way, Yair Rodriguez is from Mexico, and Brian Ortega has Mexican heritage. All Mexican fight. They low key. They don't hate each other. They're just friendly competition. Yair Rodriguez sixteen and four with one no contest. Brian Ortega fifteen and three with one no contest. Five eleven to 5'8 gives Yair three inches in height and a seventy one to sixty nine inch reach um, advantage of two. Orthodox stance for Yair. Switch stands for Brian T. City Ortega. Let's talk about El Pantera Yair Rodriguez. I mean, thirty one years old. Come on, seven KOs and five subs of his sixteen victories. That's right. He's only won three decisions. I mean, this guy's a finisher through and through. Uh, four, that is actually. My math was wrong. He has uh, He's actually never been submitted of his four losses. He's either been TKO'd or just the fight was stopped or he lost the decision. And uh, he's actually the interim champ. Beat Josh Emmett for the interim championship last uh, February. Of course, fought Volk. And unfortunately, got brutalized in July, but that's just how it goes. And actually, these two have fought before back in July of 2022. The last time Brian Ortega fought, actually, um, you know, Brian popped his shoulder in round one. fight was stopped prematurely, just four minutes in. Very sad, but you know what? The UFC, they want him to run it back, so here we go. I don't know if this is five rounds or three, but either way, I'm pumped for it. Brian Ortega from California, 33 years old, actually trains at Black House MMA, same gym as Lado Machida and Mackenzie Dern. Oh, Brian Ortega's 16 victories, three by knockout, seven by sub, and he's never been submitted as well. He's never been submitted as well. Of his 15 wins, I should say, never been submitted. His only losses are to Max Holloway, Alexander Volkanovsky, and, of course, Jair by injury. Brian joined the Brian Ortega joined the UFC in 2015. Went on a crazy finishing streak: one, two, three, four, five, six. Holy cow! Six finishes to start his UFC career. Big ones over Frankie Edgar and Adam Kano and Cub Swanson, even Clay Guida. Um, Before he lost his first professional fight to Max Holloway, which was actually for the featherweight belt. Followed that up in October 2020 with a win over Chan Sung Jung, which was actually his last win. So October 2020, four, almost four years ago, more closer to three. But I mean, it's been a while since Brown taking a guy's hand raised. Lost to Volkanovski in a fight of the night in uh, September 2021. Amazing fight, but got brutalized. And, of course, last time in 2022, lost. But Yeah, uh, also as good, also a star-studded. Um, I don't know. I don't think he won. The Ultimate Fighter might have, but he yields wins over Dan Hooker, Andre Filiac, Caceres, BJ Penn. Uh, He, of course, had the second knockout of Chan Sung Jung in their main event back in 2018. He's lost to Max Holloway. uh, These two are so talented, but the key thing in here is that Brian Ortega hasn't fought in a full year and a half. It has been so long. Meanwhile, Yeah, you know, he fought twice last year. One good result, one bad result. Nonetheless, he did land a good shot on Volganovsky Just was not his night. Volk was in his prime that night. Um, I, I am leaning Jair uh, Rodriguez a lot, though, just because of how long it's been. It's been so long. And this is the second year-plus layoff for Brian Ortega due to injury. I'm I'm not even kidding you, I'm going Yair Rodriguez round one knockout. I think he lands a clean body shot, not even right off the rip, but just in round one, Ortega goes down, gets injured again or something. I'm just feeling a quick finish from Yair Rodriguez. Al Pantera, I have him handling business. I mean, it's nothing personal against Brian Ortega, but it's just been so long. Hasn't won since 2020, I have no idea how he's even ranked number four um doesn't hold a win over anyone currently in the top 15 i mean it is it is just i i don't know what to make of it i don't know what to make of it but um best elect of both these men all mexico war gotta love it main event the big one to round it out is the number one uh, number one flyweight in the world brandon moreno takes on the number three ranked brandon roy Val. this one is going to be good your main event for ufc mexico city Brandon the Assassin Baby Moreno, and Brandon Raw Dog Royval originally was supposed to be number two ranked flyweight contender Amir Albazi, but he had to pull out Brandon Royval fresh off his loss to Alexander Pantoa for the flyweight championship back in December. was like, you know what? I'm stepping down on short notice. I want to I fight this. I want redemption. Give me Brandon Moreno, and this is actually a rematch for both these guys. How about that? Brandon Moreno, 21, 7 and 2. Professional record, Brandon Rival, 15 and 7. 5'9 5'9-5-7 gives Royval 2 inches in height. Uh, 70 to 68 in reach gives Brandon Moreno 2 inches in reach. Orthodox stands for Moreno. Brandon Royval stands in that Southpaw stands. Moreno, your former men's flyweight champion, 30 years old from Tijuana, Mexico. Of his 21 victories, 5 by knockout, 11 submissions. Crazy have his seven losses and two draws and never been finished. How about that? How about that? Brandon Moreno is not a guy who gets finished, so if he does, that would be very shocking. Moreno just has such an amazing tail. Joined the UFC in 2016, started out 3-0, and then went on a two-fight losing streak, and then a draw Um of course, actually, and actually he got cut, I think, after, was it 2019 or something? I don't know if he got cut, but uh, worked his way back, beat Kaikar France, beat Justicia Formiga, beat Brandon Rival by injury, and that was back in November 2020, uh, fought Figueredo to a draw, uh, then beat Figueredo, then lost Figueredo, then beat Kaikar France with so in an interim belt, then beat Figueredo in the first of our quadrilogy UFC fight. I mean, the first time four fires have faced each other four times two fires face each other four times. And, um, yeah, then he lost the Pantoa by split decision. One of the greatest fights I've ever seen back in July. Great. One of the greatest flyweight fights of all time. Amazing. Uh, Brandon Moreno, so talented. He can submit. Yeah. He can box with you. And he's actually outstruck his last one, two, three, four, five, last five opponents, last five opponents. Um, He's outstruck, even though even though it's, uh, three of those have been deficit big Reino. It's just pretty comical, but this dude can box, this dude can grapple. Reino is a killer. Never been finished, too. I find that very, very notable. And the man stepping in on not but two two months, two months' notice since his last fight, Brandon Rodog Royval, 31 years old, from Colorado, trains at Factory X Muay Thai. Uh, Anthony Smith trains there, just for reference. Of his 15 wins, four by knockout, nine by sub. His last fight was in December. Absolutely Crazy. Step, just a quick turnaround. We'll see, how, we'll see how it works. It's such a fast turnaround. Um, Brandon Val, killer, 5-3 and three in the UFC. I mean, Tim Elliott, Kaikar France, Brandon Raino, Alexander Pintoa, Rongeo Bontre, Matt Chanel, Matthias Nikalu, Alexander Pantoa. All these fodder killers. All these fodder killers. His grappling was really put on, really put on display on how bad it is, his takedown defense, that is, against Pantoa. Alexander Pantoa landed 8 of 14 takedowns for almost 16 minutes of control time in their December fight. Brandon Royval, he's got some knocks out, knockouts of Matthias McCallu. Um, he's got submissions of Kaker France and Matt Schnell. We'll, I'll be interested to see how this goes, but I am leaning towards Brandon Moreno. He's beaten him before. I think the grappling is going to be what gets him, uh, gets Royval down, and Moreno will strap in a submission, and he will get a rematch with Alexander Pantoja come May at UFC 301. That's a pretty bold prediction. So, yeah, round three submission, for Brandon Moreno. And why do I say round three submission? Well, that's because Ben Moreno's done it before. He submitted Debs and Figueredo in round three. He's actually finished Kaka France with a a kick in round three. Uh, There's something about round three. I think that is uh, Moreno's lucky round number. So, yeah, Ben Moreno to win in the main event. We're predicting a lot of finishes on this card, but I'd rather predict more finishes than their actual. I like to be ambitious with my predictions, so, yeah. Those are our our predictions. Those are our thoughts on the UFC Mexico City card. Best of luck to all the fighters. Remember, elevation is going to play a huge role in this. Anyone who trains in Mexico is going to have an advantage over anyone who does not. So, yes, Brandon Moreno, Yara Rodriguez, Daniel Zaluber, Raul Rosas Jr., Yasmin Jaraguay, and Manuel Torres. So, wow. I'm predicting everyone from Mexico on the main card to win. Why not? Why not? It happened at UFC Noche. Um, So, yeah, that'll do it, ladies and gentlemen. That will do it for today's episode. We, of course, went over UFC Mexico City, all of our predictions, the preview. We talked about Scientology, mentioned the PFL in Saudi Arabia, some new UFC news, the 48 Laws of Power. This was a fun one. We'll be back Monday next weekend with episode 69 debating what I should do for that episode, anything funny, anything quirky. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then episode 70 next Thursday, we're keeping the ball rolling. We're bumping out two episodes every week for a, a while, probably until April or something. But, um, yeah, thank you all for listening, and I will catch you all next time on the Surprise Jab Podcast. Have a great weekend, everyone.